Welcome to SkyCast episode 37, a podcast dedicated to all things The 100. I'm Brittany Perlman. And I'm Sarah McCabe. And today we'll be discussing season 6, episode 8, The Old Man and the Anomaly. So as always, we're going to talk a little bit about our feelings before we get into the recap. Um, (laughs) Do you want to go first? Do I? Yes, I do. (laughs) I have some feelings about this episode. And part of the reason why it's taken us so long to record this is because I don't want to talk about it. Yeah, we kind of, I made a joke on Twitter um, being like, oh yeah, we got lazy this week because we had a day or a week off and they shouldn't give us weeks off anymore, which is true. But also the real reason is like, we just didn't want to talk about it. Yeah, I feel like this <laughs> this episode was kind of a dud. Um, in an episode of, or in a season of really strong episodes, this felt kind of like a crash and burn for me. Oh, I don't know if I would say crash and burn for me. I would say there. Okay, so there is the A plot, the B plot, and the C plot, and only the C plot was working for me. For me, I would consider the anomaly plot to be the A plot because that's what the episode was named after. And that freaking loved. Loved everything about that. Well, I should clarify that I'm considering the anomaly stuff the C part only because of how much screen time is dedicated to it. Um, We got way more... um, I don't think that's true. I think that it just felt longer to you (laughs) because... No, I think we got, well, I guess, I guess there was less Abby time, yeah. less Abby and Raven time. I would consider Abby stuff the C-plot, and guys, the Abby stuff was going to be rough for us to, to handle this yeah. episode. Yeah, I don't want to, like, harp on it too much, because we'll definitely get into this later. I guess my overall feelings is, not a crash and burn, I think it's easily the weakest of this season, um, but I still like it a lot more than I liked a lot of season five. Um, I think the problem with this episode is that they, number one, tried to cram like way too many storylines and way too many plot threads into one episode. And number two, this episode really feels like a setup for like the next episode and, and kind of the rest of the season. This was like a prequel. And so that's why it wasn't as interesting to me. Yeah, I think it did not, it didn't, it didn't do, it just didn't have a lot of momentum. Um and I don't know. I was displeased with a lot of it, except for the anomaly stuff, which I loved. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> uh, <laughs> before we get into today's episode, um, we just also wanted to clarify something from last week's episode. We got several comments about the difference between a sociopath and a psychopath and which one Josephine is on this show. Um, our expert um, sociopath, psych- psychopath, um authority Sarah McCabe by expert you mean I know slightly more than you do well I know nothing (laughs) so I'm gonna let you tell the folks yeah what the difference is so I just wanted to clarify um definitely not an expert I took one psychology class in college that's a zero I I have very little knowledge but I do know the difference between a sociopath and a psychopath specifically that these two terms aren't actually really used in modern psychology. Um, a person who, like we would call a sociopath, is really just someone with um, antisocial personality disorder, and that can manifest in many different ways. Um, but you are born both a sociopath and a psychopath, and a psychopath is really just kind of um, a sociopath with some added (laughs) levels, an added level of like lack of guilt and remorse and narcissism. Um, A lot of times it's also about violence. Um, I'm looking here on healthyplace.com, the difference between a sociopath and a psychopath. 
While the traits of each may seem similar, it is thought that sociopaths have a less severe form of lack of empathy and lack of guilt. It is thought that sociopaths may be able to form some deep bonds while a psychopath cannot. Moreover, a sociopath would feel no guilt about hurting a stranger. They might feel guilt about or remorse about hurting someone which they share a bond with, which is not the same for a psychopath. So really, this is just like to say that if... Um, Josephine is anything. She is a person with sociopathic tendencies. I would not go as far as to say she's a psychopath, but you are both. You are born for each of those. You you never can be like become a sociopath. Like you're born with those characteristics already. And yeah, sure. And I think what the show is trying to to theorize or show us is that she wasn't always this way, and that she's grown less and less human over her many years of which I don't think is necessarily true I think she was showing a lot of narcissism um and and other kind of characteristics that go along with sociopathy right um even as early as like the scene we saw with Dave and we haven't really seen much about her life before that so I think that those traits were there already um but they were exacerbated yes the longer that she was alive but I do think that she was born with those traits yes yes I agree um so just wanted to clarify in case anyone was wondering. And again, for, not a medical professional. <laughs> <laughs> for all intents and purposes, yeah. she is most likely what we would call a sociopath. Okay. Um, one last thing before we get into the recap. Please take this moment to go rate and review us on iTunes. It helps other fans of The 100 find us. So go do that right now. Thank you. Thank you. And with that, let's get into it. All right. So at least we can start with the good parts. Yeah. Dioza, Octavia, and Xavier arrive at Gabriel's camp set on the verge of the anomaly, only to discover that Xavier is actually Gabriel himself. What? What? Shocking! (laughs) Still, Gabriel is set on taking Dioza and Octavia to the anomaly, and he refuses to take them with weapons since the anomaly has a similar effect as the Red Sun. Dioza isn't happy about it, but she leaves her weapons and drags a worsening Octavia along after Gabriel. First things first, love love the bike scene. I love a good bike race through the forest. I love a good Dioza and Octavia being an old married couple. Oh yeah. I got like this if there is one gift this season is giving me, it is this. There have been so many. I know, gifts. but like if I really had to choose like my favorite thing about this season, it is Dioza and Octavia and their like storyline together. <laughs> I love it too. Uh, I love it so much. So uh, and like Dioza's just so like gentle and caring with Octavia. It's really wonderful that yeah, they've like grown so close in such a short period it's of very time. Sweet how affectionate they are with each other and how well they know each other so soon. Yeah. They really are kindred spirits. Um but also it is cold that Dioza's going to like take Octavia here and make Gabriel heal her and then kill him. <laughs> yeah. I mean I'm not that I don't think that Dioza is capable of doing this and would do oh, this absolutely. because she 100% is, mm-hmm. but I think she's kind of fooling herself because she has gotten softer um, with her pregnancy <laughs> or other reasons. I just, I think she's in denial about what she's capable of still and what kind of, what she, I, and I also think she, she considers herself a monster and is, has a lot of guilt and trauma about that, but she actually isn't really a monster. So, well, and also what she was saying with, to Octavia in a couple episodes ago about how you know you can always do better. Right. You can just decide to do better and do better. And I think Octavia, or I think um, Dioza wants to do better herself. Absolutely, especially now that she's going to be somebody's mother. Um, I think she has to believe that. So I think this is like a little bit of like her old self like coming through, but she doesn't actually. This isn't actually a real threat 
I, think I, it, I don't feel like it is. And neither does Gabriel. No, <laughs> Gabriel feels like she is completely toothless. Yeah. He just like is like, okay, shoot me. Like <laughs> completely calls her bluff. Yeah, it's it's not real. Um, but so we're getting really close to the anomaly now. They call it the verge. It makes this strange buzzing sound. Yeah. That I, I, it's, it's like a lost thing almost. Yeah, you know? that's exactly what I was getting. I think that's what I said when we watched it the first Did time. Did you? Yeah. I was like, oh my God, this is so much like lost. It was like really trippy giving me all those, um, hatch vibes. Yeah. I, uh, think we heard this in episode two when Josephine heard something in the woods and it was like a buzzing. It said so in the, uh, in the subtitles and yeah. we couldn't figure out what that was supposed to be. Um, but I guess it was this it was the anomaly maybe I or thought it's it was the, plants? the bugs oh, maybe I honestly oh, no, don't I, know I'm pretty sure it was the bugs because then she said she, when she woke up when we saw her wake up later on the video footage she was like so I was right it, it, the, it affects people as well as the bugs or something um yeah well we saw um we saw that she was she was studying the bugs but they heard a noise yeah I know when she was making out I don't think that was the buzz that was not the buzz of bugs We'll have to go back and check. We should. Um, also, their their radios. Mm-hmm. Um, so they have this like stump of a tree, and there's a bunch of radios tied to it with like barbed wire or something. I mean, honestly, it looks like a really like emo Christmas tree. Well, and then the the tree is like circled with stones. Yeah. And I'm like, what am I looking at? <laughs> You're looking at an emo Christmas tree um, that sucks up radio signals apparently so but i must like it has to be important right oh my sucking up radio signals and then playing them back i can't tell if it's like in a circular motion or just like more of like a random like the anomaly kind of picks out what you need to hear at a certain period of time like we saw or we heard um one of the radios over over the radio josephine was like gabriel gabriel so um I, i don't know yeah i don't know if it's selective to a singular person or it just is it, like you're saying in some circular motion like a Fibonacci spiral maybe possibly <laughs> um but I'm very excited to you know I'm, I'm very curious if this is going to bring back all of Clark's the bell arc thing I mean yeah. that's kind of the question is is this going to bring back the uh bell arc radio signals and if it's not then what is the purpose of this and how will these radios be used? Because this seems kind of like a big thing, like a randomly big thing. You know what I mean? Yeah. I And I definitely feel like we haven't unearthed or we haven't discovered what the main purpose this is going to function it within this oh, season absolutely yet. Not. So I'm very curious to see if it isn't all of Clark's radio calls to Bellamy, then what is it? Well, and in fact, Jason said in an interview pretty recently that the anomaly was also going to play a big role in season seven. Yeah. Um, so I think we're really just starting to scratch the surface of what the anomaly is and what it's capable of and, you know, what kind of entity it is and what it wants. So... Maybe we won't find this out until next season. I don't know. But I'm really excited to hear more. Yeah. I was like trying to catch specific radio signals and it was hard. <laughs> yeah. It was very cool. I'm super into this and I, I love a good mystery. Yeah. So that's always fun. Um, I did want to call out this beautiful photo of Josephine sitting right on the desk there. <laughs> Dead oh giveaway that this is actually Gabriel <laughs> even before they reveal it like two minutes later. Yeah. Um, if we weren't sure, we well, are now. <laughs> to be fair, this was supposed to be Gabriel's uh, tent. Well, I, I know. So, but, like, they were like, in Gabriel's He tent. literally tells Dioza, don't touch that. It's <laughs> like, really? Don't touch it. Gabriel likes it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, he does because he's standing right here. Uh, so, not only was that, like, a cute little Easter egg that we got 
Um, but also, I just have to say, dude, get over her, man. <laughs> like, as Dioza said, she's just not that into you. Like, yeah. let it go. She lo- just looks at you like you're like a toy. She likes to play with you. Also, like, honestly, you can do better. And I'm not even sure if that's saying something because you got some some issues yeah i mean like your your slate is not clean (laughs) also by the way xavier is gabriel (laughs) so (laughs) just need to establish just again to establish that xavier is gabriel from now on i will be calling him gabriel which will be so much easier for me because i wanted to do that for like every episode you know to come so yeah um from henceforth from henceforth he is gabriel um my question coming out of this or one of them at least is why would the anomaly have similar effects as the plants or um, as the red sun does on the plants. Is it, like, is this something that we had, like, theorized beforehand that, like, the anomaly is, like, sentient and, like, controlling the plants? Or is this just all some sort of symbiotic biology at work? Or, like, what do we think is happening here? I think that the this planet has kind of evolved in tandem with the red sun. So I think that, you know, the red sun and the anomaly and the plants – they haven't evolved separately. They've all, I mean, evolved together. I don't know how long this sun has been a red sun. That's like the last stage of a sun's life. So this planet could have been something very different, you know, millions of millions, millions of, years of years ago. ago. I don't know. Uh, I don't know how old the anomaly is. In my opinion, it's probably some like super old alien entity, like way, way beyond An anything we could get. Yeah, super old. Yeah. Anything we can comprehend. Um, no, I meant that as like a capital A, like an ancient. Oh, like, an ancient. Like a wise <laughs> being. <laughs> yes. The anomaly is an ancient and also seems pretty dedicated to like helping our characters get its shit together. And I'm just making this up at this point because it shampooed Octavia's hair, but it was needed. So I, mean, <laughs> I cannot wait for Octavia or for the uh, anomaly to like start whipping other characters into shape. Yeah, I really just want the anomaly to be- become more of a character at this point. You Maybe know? that's why the uh, the anomaly wanted Dioza. It, like, wanted a therapist to, like, really Help up her. its yeah. uh, <laughs> its therapy skills. <laughs> um, speaking of Dioza, I just had to call out how enjoyable it was for her to go through it. The classic villain, <laughs> anti-hero uh, trope of de-arming herself with yeah. her many weapons we knew it was coming even before she stepped up it to was the, the great basket. though i loved it all of the knives the guns her hands what are you gonna do about these weapons <laughs> <laughs> they could kill you 50 ways <laughs> gabriel so, also liked that she's so delightful <laughs> just what a gift um yeah i loved that and then also, it's interesting that when Octavia comes back to herself after losing her memories, she identifies Dioza as um, the two serpents and one garden quote, mm-hmm. which I thought was just really interesting that that's, that was the quote that she went to. And I know like the, uh, the there's a very obvious explanation of like this was like how they met each other and th- this was, you know, their original uh, dynamic between them and their relationship. Um but just after all the things that they've been through and now to see where they have become, what have they've become and what they mean to each other, it's just interesting that that's still like Octavia's like primary identifier for her. Well, I don't think it was more of like I still see you as a serpent specifically, but it was more of her saying like we are the two bad people who destroyed, you know, something good for our own people. Um and so, like, I think Octavia still sees herself that way. And I think she still sees Dioza that way in, like, a certain, 
to a certain extent. Oh, I 100%. I don't think she thinks Dio's is a bad person, but. No, I agree with you 100%. I, I totally think that's why. Um, I don't think it. I don't think it's that she still thinks of Dioza as an antagonist, but I think that she still thinks that the two of them are like the, the same. And they are. They are. Honestly. Yeah. I mean, Dioza is just a much more evolved version of Octavia, but it's someone, Dioza is someone that Octavia could one day become. And like that, that would be the dream. <laughs> <laughs> that would be the hope. <laughs> um, and then the last thing I wanted to comment about this scene is um, at the end of this, Dioza says to Octavia, I've got a bad feeling about this, which is just a classic Star Wars line. Yeah. I loved that little wink. There's very, a very classic cute. Star Wars line in the next episode's title. So yes, yes, <laughs> prepping us for that. So moving on, <sighs> on the mothership, Raven discovers go. what Abby actually plans to do in order to save Kane when she meets Gavin, the knoll who was chosen to become a Nightblood and the next Prime. She tries to talk more sense into Abby, and although Abby is clearly uncomfortable, she tries not to listen. Simone, sensing Abby's resolve waver- <laughs> that's a tongue twister. Resolve wavering, gives Gavin the serum to wipe his mind. No turning back now. Um, so first off, before we get into any of that shit, Nyla's back. <laughs> there she is. For a very brief moment. Five um, seconds on screen. Well, she, I think she comes back later when Abby's trying on her suit, but doesn't really say anything. Yes, That's so kind of like seconds par total. for the course for the writers and Nyla. She's just kind of like around in the background. Yeah. Uh, but Nyla's back and I love her and I love that she is not pleased with what Abby's doing. Yeah. Uh, I think that's a really good sign. <laughs> <laughs> that's all I can say about that because we didn't really get much, but I'm glad she's on our side of yeah. things and not catering to Abby's delusions. Um, Something that I noticed is Simone is just like not fucking around. Like the stakes are super high for her. They're as high as they can be. And she just has like no more fucks to give. She's like, sorry, Gavin, you were nice. Funk. Okay. You're erased. There was like no buildup. There was no, uh, this was I, what I thought was going to be the climax. Mm -hmm. Um, and it was just done like within five minutes of the show starting yeah um I just couldn't believe well a that the mechanics of the show that that happened and b like what it what it shows about Simone's character I mean like she is just yeah I mean full throttle (laughs) I certainly agree I thought this was going to be what the episode centered on is whether or not to wipe Gavin and uh (laughs) it wasn't no Gavin's (laughs) wiped yeah Speaking of, Abby can't even look at Gavin. I mean, deep down, she knows this is wrong, but she can't help herself. Um, But you would think that somebody who can't even physically stomach looking at the person would recognize the signs of of how discomforting this is for them. I don't think Abby is anywhere close to that level of, like, self-aware anymore. Oh, no, of course not. I would say you would hope. Yeah, you would. You would, but apparently she's... And at one point in time, Abby would have been able to, 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 she would have been that self-aware, but, you know, that's kind of the tragedy of, of what Abby's become. Absolutely. Um, you know, she can't, she can't even face what she's doing. And I think that that in some ways makes it even more reprehensible. Oh, for sure. Like if she were going into this, making an active choice to kill Gavin, that's still terrible. And admitting her guilt. Yeah. I mean, I think and we can get into this more later, but I think part of the problem is, is that she's still trying to justify that this is the right thing to do instead of accepting that it's the wrong thing to do, but she's going to do it anyway. Mm-hmm. 
that I feel like would have been I would have felt more comfortable with because at least she would have been making a conscious choice whereas here she is acting from a place of pure denial which is horrible what it reminds me of and this was kind of a big turning point for me um, in terms of how I viewed Abby's character but it reminds me of back in season four when Abby is trying to I think she was going to insert the nightblood into um, Maury, right? Yeah. And Clark ended up taking the the needle from her and like saying, I'll do it myself. And then obviously we know that Clark ended up stabbing herself with the nightblood. But Abby, kind of in the same way that I had the issues with Raven, like Abby talks a big talk, but then she can't be the one to like truly make the hard decisions. No, she can't. Like she sure told Octavia what needed to be done in the dark year. Um, and you know what? Probably was right. But she still couldn't be the one to like pull that trigger. She just doesn't have it in her. And she also is still unable to fully process that and get over it. I mean, like she is so traumatized by what she feels like she's responsible for that it is like completely incapacitated her. Whereas if she just owned it, um, not I'm not saying that this would be easy to do. It would really take a lot of emotional work. But if she were able to own it, then she would be able to process and get over it. And then she would be able to be a healthier person where she's just like totally stunted. Yeah. I'm not saying that it's weakness to actively not be able to hurt someone. Um, But I, I do think that it is weakness in the sense that she like is making these big decisions, but then kind of forces or tricks other people into actually doing the act for her. Yeah. You know, and it's just, it, it just really needles me. Well, it's manipulative. I don't even I don't even know if I think it's manipulative. I just I think that's it kind of reminds me of Game of Thrones. The very first episode of Game of Thrones when Ned um goes and like kills uh someone who had been sentenced to death himself because he's like, you know, if you're going to do the sentencing, you need to be able to carry out the sentence. Sure. Um and that's kind of what I feel like I don't know if I would like Abby more if she could be the one to like actively stab Gavin with the needle or actively pull the trigger in the dark ear. I don't know. I think it would be cool. I think it would be more way more interesting. Yeah. I don't know if it would make her likable, but characters don't need to be likable. They should be interesting. Um, and right now she's just uninteresting because all of the decisions that she's making are coming from a place of fear and denial um, instead of active choices like you were saying before which is it's it's getting old well I had this discussion for a little bit later but um, Raven says something interesting at the end of the scene which is so much for do no harm yeah um, and do no harm is kind of as you guys know the the doctor's mantra um, only help not harm sure um, and this has really been kind of the tragic descent of Abby throughout the entire series whereas like in the first season we see her really really focused on making sure that humanity deserves to live yeah um that's where she was kind of at odds with Cain because Cain wanted to make sure they survived and Abby wanted to make sure that they deserved to survive and throughout the seasons um that has gotten really watered down you know like in the early seasons it was all Abby was still, you know, really a moral center. She was the one who told Clark when she bombed DC, like, that blood is on your hands. And she told Clark that, you know, there are good guys. You're the good guy. She has been that person. And then as she herself has been traumatized, she's gotten to this state where she still can't actually do the harm, but she's actively pushing other people to do it for her. You know? Yes. Yes, and I 
I, I appreciate that the show takes time and um, care to demonstrate the effects of, of trauma and the different ways that it manifests. And we've talked about that a lot on this show. And I'm not saying that Abby's ultimate state of mind now is an irrational state of being considering what she's been through. I mean, I can only hope that I would be still functional as she is. Like, you know, this is not a reflection on her as as a person. It's more of, you know, I'm talking from a, from a writing and from a storytelling point of view. I find this state, Abby's condition, for lack of a better word, um, of if incapability of, of of owning her own actions, very very tiring to watch. Yeah, it's it's irritating. It's irritating, and it's not. We have come to what it feels like is the end of her arc and her storyline. And and if they if they're not going to reinvigorate her, if they're not going to freshen up or put something else. change directions for her then I don't know where to go from here yeah it really feels like they were too afraid to kill her off and nor do I want her to be killed off because I don't want Clark to have to deal with uh, like more grief for another season um but they also have no idea it seems what to do with Abby no they pushed her into this storyline that honestly not that interesting and it doesn't feel like it matters much to the greater plot you know I, I mean I guess if you wanted to like say well they needed to force Abby to show them how to make night blood and the only reason to do that is so she could save Kane. I don't know I think that's pretty weak it's pretty contrived there are about a million other ways that they could have either explained to them how to make night blood or just showed them mm-hmm. with a bone marrow transplant um so the whole like going into space using the zero g to make Becca's formula like all this stuff is a very contrived plot line that feels like it's relegating Abby away from the central characters because she's toxic. This character is toxic and everybody who touches her is toxic. And that includes, first and foremost, Raven. It's just, it's unpleasant to watch. And I honestly don't know what they're going to do with her character going forward. I just, I don't think she has a purpose on the show anymore. I don't either. The I, adults I, are phased out. Right. <laughs> I mean, like, that's the whole point, right? Is like, we have, our heroes were children mm-hmm. and they have become the adults. They have become the leaders that we want them to be. Um, and the people that they looked up to for guidance and wisdom were obsolete in season one. So six <laughs> years later, their their obsolation is 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 beyond annoying at yeah. this point. It is way old. Um, and like you're saying, like I don't want Abby to die because I don't want Clark to have to go through that kind of tragedy again. But the loss of another parent, I'm not interested in watching Clark grieve over that. Mm-mm. But I, if they're going to keep her on the show, then they need to figure out something more functional to do with her because this is not it. Well, especially if season seven is the last season. Like, are they going to just, like, give her a redemptive death? Are they going to try to give her a redemptive arc? I, I don't know. I don't know how you could really turn this character around at this point. Or I have are they going to phase that. her out in a, like, I'm going to go live on a compound with hippies and, like, be the, the doctor I mean, I have a hard time believing that this is where they choose to end her arc. Um, this kind of fall and then nothing. Well, I don't know how, I mean, if this is the status stasis for the rest of the season, then yeah, I agree. But this is the halfway point. No, so. no, no. I, I realize we don't know how this season's going to, to function going forward. Um, but I just think given where she is mentally, I, I, I don't know how you move on from this. Yeah. It's a mystery. I'm not sure. 
I'm also really, really sick of these plot lines where Raven tells people why they're wrong, but she doesn't do anything to stop it. Yes. I just feel like we get this over and over and over again with Raven, where it's like, yes, Raven, you're right. You're probably correct. But if you don't do anything to stop it, you're culpable. <laughs> right. Just because you, you, you verbalize that it's wrong doesn't make you any less responsible until you take action against it to counteract it. You are just as responsible and honestly, more annoying. <laughs> I mean, like, all she had to do in this episode, if she doesn't want this to happen, is, is go on the spacewalk and just let the serum fly out into space because Abby specifically says to Nyla, be careful with that. We can't make any more. <laughs> so just let it go and then be like, Abby, I did this for your own good. <laughs> and that's what that's what I'm saying is, like, everything about this space, this Abby and Raven plotline feels so contrived. There are so many plot holes and loopholes that could have been smoothed over and much shorter cuts to take than this really circuitous, what feels like endless misery up there <laughs> that like, you know, it's really just to give Abby something to do. Yeah. But it's, it's so, it's so clumsily contrived that it it's, it's like, I see what's happening here and yeah. it's not working. Anyway, let's move on. Yeah. Russell is looking at Josephine's brain scan and tells her they have about 36 hours until Clark's body is dead. Russell surprises Josephine by telling her that after Simone comes back with instructions on how to make night blood, he's going to save Clark and put Josephine in a willing host. Josephine, however, is not so sure she wants to give up Clark's body. Of course not. Because Clark's not. hot. Clark is a hottie. Um, but they really did immediately answer a question that we had talked about a little bit last episode, which was how are they going to use the EMP to get rid of Clark, um, but not harm the mind drive. Yeah. And it really was just as simple as like, we're going to take out the mind drive and then shock Put her. it back. Okay, sure. We're going to reboot. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm glad that they acknowledged it and they answered it. That was really annoying, but like, thank you very much. <laughs> um, and it also surprised me that Russell's first inclination was to give Clark her body back. But I'm not sure why it surprised me because I think that fits in to what his character is where he thinks, again, he thinks he's the good guy. Yeah. Um, and so I, I think I've just come to expect so little from him that I was like, oh, that's like a nice thing to do. But of course you did kill her in the first place. So. Yeah. And I mean, I, that's so, I mean, I had the exact same reaction too, right? Where I was like, oh. Wow, that's nice of you. That's like, that's really polite. Thank you. Um, <laughs> thank you for giving thank my you body for back giving to her me. body back. <laughs> so thoughtful. Um, but you know that that's him in a moment of calmness and in a, a moment of rationality. We see him lose control and go over the edge and let his anger come through later in this episode. Mm -hmm. He has this, you know, dual personality, um, the angel and the devil, where he just chooses to ignore the fact that he is a bad person and only <laughs> sees the goodness in himself yeah which is really interesting um, I mean, he does justify it as like it's for my people but <laughs> sure he, he reminds me of someone <laughs> <laughs> sure I do think it's interesting too because Josephine's primary attribute is selfishness I mean that is like the number one characteristic of Josephine is how self-centered she is and I think it's so fascinating that it it never even occurred to her to give up Clark's body you know like she was like flabbergasted when Russell was like no no we're we have another option here well I think it occurred to her Clark 
asked she was Clark when she was in Clark's mind was like get the fuck out of my body and get a new body and she was like mm, I could do that but I like your body well so, like, sure. it did occur to her she just doesn't want to right exactly that's what exactly what I was gonna say is the only reason why she she chooses not to is because she likes likes Clark body too much I think what you're saying is it didn't occur to her that Russell would think she should give up the body yes <laughs> yes um what is Clark doing in Josephine's brain right now? You know, I don't know. we we did get photos this episode before the episode actually came out that they had Clark in it, but there was no Clark in this episode. And we, number one, I found that weird. But we also don't know why she was able to be awake and functioning when Josephine was um, awake that morning and she was like sending out Morse code. Yeah. So like we we know that she could be awake at the same time that Josephine's awake. But later, Riker says that Clark would be barely be able to move if Josephine was awake. So I'm I'm getting some, like, conflicting things. And I feel like we need to see what Clark is doing. I wonder if that was just, like, a deleted scene in this episode. It could have been. But it- if so, why release two of the four promotional photos of Clark? Well, they may have, like, preset the promotional photos Maybe. before it airs. They usually do that because the fo- the stills they get um are from, like, early versions before anything has been edited Mm -hmm. and the marketing teams like need to have all the promotional stuff like ready to go weeks in advance and they are usually still cutting stuff together until like a week before it airs um so the promotional photos they probably just forgot that they had like cut half of the things out that they had given them permission to use for promotional photos like that is less weird to me that was just an oversight between the marketing team and the actual production Mm -hmm. team they're not always like in cahoots um but what i think is interesting is the fact that they all seem to be taking for granted what they think they know what like a conscious mind functions in a in a host like with the host consciousness functions with another conscious implanted in them but they've never encountered any encountered anybody like clark's mesh thing before so they don't know yeah. what, what they don't know I was but gonna mention just, that too I was like Riker number one you don't know what you're talking about no he doesn't and neither really does Russell and Josephine but they're going off of information and data that they have you know that is similar to what Clark is but different so I think they're they're taking it for granted a lot of things well to be so when Clark or when Riker earlier said that Clark wouldn't be able to move while Josephine was awake Josephine says not exactly um, which I'm assuming is because in an earlier version of the episode, we would see Clark. In one of the pictures, she was like pointing a gun at someone and another she was just lying on the floor of her cell. So we know that there was at one point a plot line that revolved around Clark. And I'm really curious as to why they cut it, because I kind of feel like we need it. Well, it might be in the net. They may have not have cut. They may have cut it from this. You but think then they might have just it. moved it? Yeah, Maybe. I think, they, I think they moved it. But I we'll don't know. see. Yeah. Um, going back to what we were talking about a little bit, I just wanted to talk about this a little more is I think there is a part of Josephine that truly wishes that Russell was more cold blooded like she is. I mean, like she, she tells him to finish what he started, which is basically accusing him of not having the balls to see this thing through that he started from the beginning. Um, and you can like kind of see Josephine getting frustrated with her dad in a way that is like a little bit more aggressive I think than we have seen in previous episodes I don't know we saw a couple of episodes ago she was telling him like this is what happens when you try to make an omelet without breaking any eggs yeah I think she constantly feels this about him that his emotions get in the way of them truly being great and 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 truly um evolving as a as a people whatever the hell they are (laughs) 
Um, but I, I definitely agree that she wishes Russell were more like her because I think she thinks that she is always right. I also think she thinks that she is special and Russell has done nothing to dissuade her of that fact. I mean, like he, she is so spoiled by both of her parents, Mm -hmm. um, (laughs) that she has been led to believe that she is, she is a God. Her parents have literally given her godhood, um, and yet they have done nothing to, to check her. And so I think that she inherently believes that the reason they haven't really controlled or tried to min- control her is because they ultimately agree with her, but they just don't have the balls to do what she, she can do in a very similar way that Clark yeah. does, um, which makes her a really interesting foil for Clark. Yeah, I think Josephine sees Russell as the leader that people look up to, but she sees herself as like the true visionary. And so she, through manipulation, has to kind of coerce Russell into seeing things her way constantly. Yeah. Um, it kind of reminds me of that quote from um, My Big Fat Greek Wedding, where it was like, ah, oh, the husband is the head, but the wife controls the neck, and the, the, the neck, neck can, can move t- the head anywhere it wants. Any way it wants. Which is pretty sexist, but um, <laughs> I love that. But also not wrong. Uh, I don't know. Sometimes the wife is the head. Let's be real here, Oh, guys. yeah, no, that's true. Sometimes the husband is the foot. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes the husband is the nose. <laughs> um, but, yeah, so it's a really interesting dynamic between Josephine and Russell, I agree. Yeah. Uh, Josephine says that she has seen the inside of Clark's head and knows what she's capable of. And <laughs> quite honestly, like, that line makes me laugh every time I hear it because it's like, are you listening to yourself? You have left babies in the woods to die. Like, no, you're the most evil. What is Clark capable of? What are you capable of? <laughs> I hear you, and I completely agree with you, but I also love this line because I think it's another instance of Josephine admiring Clark yeah. for her badassery, which she does all the time. And I just appreciate someone who can appreciate Clark. <laughs> you know? I agree with that. Clark has been a pretty low in appreciation this season yeah, so I'm like unfortunately it comes like, from the villain but. Josephine is a Clark stan like she stands <laughs> Clark and I am into it <laughs> so great and I also think that Russell's faith in Clark's goodness is really interesting too like he has faith he like adamantly believes that she won't retaliate mm-hmm. once he gives her body back which I think is fascinating because we have not seen any evidence to support this other than Clark saying so herself yeah I mean but I think that's everything that he's experienced of Clark is that she has this like deep-seated drive to do better for her people and I think and I don't disagree with him like I think if they'd given Clark her body back she'd be like well fuck you but also like we're just gonna go oh yeah you well actually no I don't think she would at this point <laughs> sorry I forgot her old conversation with Monty yeah no they're She's not like, going anywhere. we're gonna go after we dismantle this uh really oppressive system here <laughs> murderous <laughs> system um but I I don't think that Clark would retaliate in Maddie's way of just like let's murder everyone <laughs> no probably not anymore not. that's not Clark anymore in the tavern, Sky Crew are discussing how to save Clark. They concoct a complicated plan to kidnap Josephine and take her to the mothership to operate, but Maddie has a simpler idea. Just kill all the primes, and if necessary, the rest of the Sanctum people, and do the operation here in their labs. Yeah, no problem. But Bellamy <laughs> is not up for massacring people, much to Maddie's chagrin. <laughs> dang, Bellamy always a stick in the mud. <laughs> Uh, the first thing that we see in this scene um, is Jackson talking about, you know, Clark, you know, being grateful that Clark is alive on, for 
Abby's sake, you know, for Abby's the half. I mean, I'm sure Jackson is grateful for his own sake that Clark is alive. Um, <laughs> but it's really he's thinking about Abby um, when he's talking about this. And it's just really sad because in this episode, this is like right at the moment where Abby has given up any right to to grieve over some the loss of somebody when she is like actively taking people away from their loved ones. Um, and so the irony of what's happening here, this statement of what Jackson is saying versus what Abby is doing is just very dramatic and very sad. Yeah, I mean, for me, it's just like, I don't really care what Abby feels right now. Well, like, yeah, I, I, like, you know, if she was upset, eh, who cares? Yeah. That's where I am with their character right now. I mean, exactly. It, it, we don't care what how Abby feels because she's given up the right to feel anything and at this point. Also, Abby doesn't care how you feel, Jackson. She only cares how she feels and she only cares about Kane at this point. So. Yeah. Very selfish. Uh, speaking about only caring, <laughs> oh. <laughs> I like let in right nicely. Uh, Jordan Tabellamy says, "Oh, you only care about Clark." And it's like, "Welcome to the show, my dude." Yep. You know. <laughs> um, but really, in all actuality, I, I don't think this is true. I don't think he only cares about Clark, but I do think that he needs Clark in a way that he doesn't need the others. Oh, sure. I think Clark is his center and his foil um, and his partner. And you know, I I, I just don't think that Bellamy can function properly especially in high stress situations without Clark you know like yes he was the leader on the arc but okay their biggest issue was like algae you know yeah so really Clark is the one who handles the stress and Bellamy is the one who handles the people you yeah know? and I think what he said is true he was like I do care about everyone I just only care about right, Clark now, right now <laughs> I need to care about you know, there's an urgency to his yeah. message that Jordan is not appreciating because it doesn't include Delilah, which, like, that's fair, Jordan. But also, but also Delilah dead. Delilah is dead. <laughs> um, but, yeah, I think it's just funny that Jordan Jordan is the only one who would have even bothered to ask that question yeah. because he hasn't been here for six the years. The other characters figured that out that season. I was too surprised they didn't burst out laughing when he asked that question. <laughs> I know I wanted to see some like eye rolls I wanted to be like Echo looking at him like dude <laughs> are you kidding um but talking about Maddie so we gotta talk about Shade Hedda well we do my first question is who told Bellamy about Shade Hedda like how does he know who Shade Hedda is like did Gaia tell him before she left it doesn't seem likely to me that Maddie would tell them who Shade Hedda is I don't know, but that was weird. But honestly, before even that, what is Shade Hedda's point? I don't know. You know, we've lost so much of the Shade Hedda context this season that I, I, like, I can't really figure out what they're doing with this like random commander in Maddie's head who's just like murder. I know <laughs> it's a weird. Um, well, like I thought that was gonna be like the big bad in Shade a weird Hedda. Part. Yeah. Oh, like, I didn't. I didn't think it was gonna be a big bad in the like. This is like the big season you know villain but I thought it was going to be like a central character that we would like get more of I just I'm a little worried that this is going to be like an Abby situation where they didn't know what to do with Maddie and so they like gave her this like random thing but they don't have a lot of time to devote to it so it's just kind of there hanging there without a lot to do I mean I thought that Shade Hedda was going to be pushing Maddie in a darker direction this season um which he is, but I feel like we don't have any more context than that, and that is not enough to really justify this plotline. Like, just having this idea of, like, a dark commander isn't enough reason um, 
to give Maddie this arc. And so I, I really want to know what they meant to do with Shade Hedda, what his like purpose is supposed to function as. Well, maybe we'll get more of it in the second half. Maybe. I mean, like, honestly, we're not done with the season yet. I get that. But at this point, Shade Hedda is just kind of like, why, why are you here? Well, yeah, you're just <laughs> hanging out really shitty um and then also kind of to your to your question about Gaia I have no idea I agree I thought it was weird that Bellamy knew about Jade Hedda but like, also, is like, Maddie sitting there being like by the way I'm seeing dead people but but also where is Gaia because she can't pass through the radiation shield so is she just like exiled from the tavern like where is she well that was the question last episode but more than that like is anyone concerned where she is have well, you asked the question, where is like, Gaia? It seems like like Bellamy knows where Gaia is because he's like, if Gaia were here, she'd tell you. It sounded like he was admonishing her. So is he okay with Maddie, the 12-year-old, exiling her? Like, I'm I just, don't think Bellamy cares enough about that right now. Like, he's, you know, pretty focused on Clark. Yeah, he's busy. I don't know. There was just a casualness of the way he said it that I was like, really? Like, oh, I didn't think it was casual. I think it seemed more of he was like kind of slapping her on the wrist like if Gaia were here she'd tell you that too but she's not here (laughs) I don't know but also Maddie's um I am the commander the commander of who Maddie she was like oh yeah most importantly I'm the commander and it's just like looking around this table of like sky crew I guess Echo maybe I think Echo's the one who like would defer to her the most but also like Maddie you are a child and these people should not be giving you free reign. Population of one. Commander of yourself. Well, no. That's- I mean, she does have people on the Ark who are still, you know, roped into the grounder religious system. But they are asleep right now. Or if not asleep, chilling. Chilling on the mothership, you know? It was an absurd statement. And it made her sound like a I know. I a kind of. Child. I mean, it made her sound like a 12-year-old. Yeah. I kind of wished that the people had kind of like chuckled. Like, oh, yeah, right. It's like, oh, my God. <laughs> I did think it was interesting that Maddie um, just assumed that Echo would approve of her plan from the start. I mean, we see Echo clearly does not approve. She very diplomatically is like, yeah, you know, that's a very aggressive approach. Um, We could try something with less murder. And Maddie gets a little affronted by this lack of loyalty, I think you could call it from one perspective. Because she just assumes that Echo will fall in line with whatever plan she has because she is a grounder. Mm -hmm. Um, And in retaliation for this, like, what I guess she would perceive as a slight, you know, she she goes on and calls her a spy, which is just unacceptable to me. Like, it's so dehumanizing to refer to somebody by their what they are instead of their name and it's like relegating her back to the position of a soldier as somebody to obey and not as a member of the team who has like her own valuable contributions to make which she does several times in this episode yeah that's not quite correct she doesn't actually call echo a spy in retaliation she calls her a spy before she even knows what echo thinks about it which for me seems even more like an affront like she just turns to echo and she's like echo agrees with me don't you spy and then echo's like "Mm, i you know it's okay yeah that's way worse that's what i'm saying like it, it feels worse where she like doesn't seem to value echo enough as a human to even like say oh echo what's your opinion it's more of like hey spy what do you think well or don't you agree with me spy spy of who is like my follower like yeah somebody that i command i mean it, it is very disrespectful to echo and everything that she has done and honestly 
It's not a good look for Maddie. Maddie needs kind of a spanking. I'm not she, gonna be. I'm gonna she be honest does. Here. <laughs> you need. You need to be whooped. Like, <laughs> um. But, you know, talking about Echo and being a spy, we've had several people this season bring that up, um, kind of like a nudge, nudge, hey, remember this? Uh, I think Amori did it back in episode two when Amori was under the effects of the Red Sun. And then it might have happened one other time and then also happened here um, where her being a spy has been, like, specifically called out. And so I, I do hope that, you know, with all of these call-outs, it seems to make it clear that they're heading towards something story-wise. Uh, and I'm curious how we're going to see that play out in Neko's backstory, how her being, her, her, her vision of herself as a spy and what that means for her on a kind of self-actualization level. Yeah. Is, how that's going to play out when we get her um, backstory episode. Yeah, I'm really excited for that. I, I would say I'm, that's like one of the mo- biggest things I'm more excited for in this yeah, season. Yeah, I agree. That's left. Um, also, when your child says that she wants to massacre people, maybe stick a babysitter on her. Yeah, you think? <laughs> I just have these weird murderous tendencies, hormones, pre-adolescence, whatever you want to call it. I'm just going to go have my feelings over here. Oh, look, a dead person, like within 30 minutes. Like maybe just like stick someone on her. Just yeah. a thought. You're not wrong. <laughs> um, changing gears a little bit, I want to talk about the Amori of this scene. Do we think, well, the fact that she's not there, but also do we think it's fair that they lump Amori in with Murphy and keep her out of these plans? This is a loaded question because I know your answer. Uh, well, my, my answer is this is a very loaded question because it I is. have a lot of thoughts about Amori's arc in this episode um, and ways that I strongly disagree with the way she was characterized um so can we put a pin in this yes until we talk about it later i i think i mean the show demonstrates that they were right to lump maury in with murphy but i think that's bullshit i'm much more along the lines of echo being a little disturbed that maury was being kept out of it yeah um i wanted to bring this up here because i think it's important to talk about the whole Amori of it all, um, where it sort of begins in this episode, mm-hmm. which is, I think, right here. Yeah. Um, but we'll definitely get more into it. I mean, later. I do want to say I love seeing the relationship between Echo and Amori in this episode. There's like several little moments where it's clear that like Echo and Amori were talking, or like Echo is like, what about Amori? Or, you know, Amori sees Echo and makes her change her mind. Like, there's just a lot of really great things between them. And I wish that this was a relationship that we could explore a little bit more because they're the only two grounders among the rest of the like Sky Crew family that they've concocted um, and how their pasts and the loaded, you know, the baggage that they've taken from their time on Earth has led to them forming this kind of interesting friendship they have here. Oh, agreed. I, I love them. I think, you know, it would be great to get more time with them. But if we can't get as much time with them, then I at least appreciate the little moments and beats that they give them in the meantime. Yeah. And I appreciate them. Yeah. You know, because it would be very easy to leave that out. But that is... A demonstration of good storytelling is that they include those little moments and so I don't want to penalize them for that because I appreciate that. Oh I agree. That. I agree. Yeah. I just wish there were more. Murphy wakes up a sleeping Amori in the workshop. Amori can't believe that Murphy's okay with the Primes killing Clark but then Murphy reveals what's in it for him immortality. Then he proposes to Amori that they spend eternity together literally. 
Before Amori can answer, Josephine comes in and reveals that, oh, Clark isn't actually dead yet. And she ropes Murphy, Amori, and Riker into helping her get rid of Clark for good. Yeah. Okay, so before we get into all of this, <laughs> um, I, did, I just want to talk a little tiny bit about um, how soft and romantic Murphy is. I mean, he is so in love with her. I yeah. mean, he's so twisted and, and fucked up in so many ways. But he... He loves Amori so much, um, and he is so soft in this moment and, and so gentle, and, you know, he comes over and he gives her a little kiss on the head, and he sweetly wakes her up, and it could have been in a totally other show. I mean, it was like I was, like, thrown for a loop here, and then yeah. he, like, full-on proposes – which was shocking to me. Um, I didn't. Does Amori even know what a proposal? I was is. like, he got down on one knee, and I was like, does she know what this yeah. is? Yeah. Um, but I get the. I understand the gesture. Um, and I thought it was very cute and sweet of him to be like traditional. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but I, it was very weird. <laughs> I mean, I, I do believe they love each other, but I think that they have such a dysfunctional relationship. Um, you know, there's just, first off, it's really, it's Murphy. Murphy is the dysfunction in the relationship because Murphy hates himself and Murphy constantly makes bad choices. And I think that that puts a pressure on Amori that doesn't need to be there, uh, to kind of be his person and to kind of lead him around in the right directions or to, you know, be the person that he can you know, turn to when he's done something bad. And I, I, I honestly think that Murphy needs to be alone um, to really figure out himself before I could be happy seeing him and Amori together because I still haven't forgiven him for what he did to her in the uh, space between seasons four and five. Absolutely. Um, basically just like gaslighting her and then, you know, trying to control her and being upset when she, I don't know, made other friends. Like that is highly toxic. It's toxic. It's all toxic. And I, I like that she she doesn't answer him. You know, like I like that in within the universe of the show, Amori is smart enough to know that he is toxic. She has put their issues on the back burner and has been trotting along with him and playing nice for about a season and a half now. But I think it's this moment of proposal where we see her hesitate. And then things go really wonky. I actually really disagree with you. I think she was just about to say, like, yes, when Josephine comes in. I don't feel like she was hesitating at all. Really? Yeah, I think she was, like, overcome with, like, the emotion of the moment. But I did not see her as, like, being conflicted. I don't know. I felt like there was some hesitancy there. I think ultimately she would have said yes. But I don't think she was, like... It was an instinctual, like, oh, my God, yes, I want to marry you this second. I think it was, like... Well, I don't think she knows what being married is, but... but I, or I want to be with you in a committed, as long as commitment can be kind of way. Um, I think she is aware of that he's bad for her. I think she's just used to being mistreated and thinks it's okay, which is... It was just not. Yeah. Um, and it's totally toxic in its own right, but... I think she's aware that he's not good for her, but she doesn't care. Yeah. Well, let's just talk about Amori a little bit and Amori's characterization here. I have, like, so many thoughts this episode, and I tried to organize them as best as I could. Um, so hopefully it all makes sense. But, you know, when we first see Amori wake up, she is kind of, like, upset and confused about why Murphy seems so, like, chill. Like, she is not sure why he doesn't seem to care about Clark being dead. Um, and then, like, five minutes later, when they find out that Clark isn't actually dead, and Maury's like, yep, yeah, we'll just, we'll murder her, it's cool. Like, she goes along with the plan, and I honestly thought this was, like, 
a fake out. I thought she was like immediately thinking, oh, got to tell Bellamy, but I got to like pretend that I'm going along with this plan. But that's not what happened. Uh, she really was just like, sure, let's kill Clark, I guess. Cool. Yeah, it was very odd choice for them to first give her the the emotional um, intelligence to feel the grieving for Clark, but then to immediately turn on her five minutes later. I mean, I don't even think Imori feels the grieving for herself. I don't think she cares that much about Clark. She doesn't know Clark, but she, I think, feels the grieving for Bellamy specifically and then, like, the rest of her family as well. Yeah, I mean, I think in the sense of, like, being a family unit. I don't Mm -hmm. think it's, like, as personal as Murphy or Bellamy's grief, but... I think she's sad and I think she's worried yeah. about what this means. Um, and just having the emotional um, EQ to to acknowledge that, which is something that Murphy cannot do. Yeah. Um, and then to have her turn around and then like shut down yeah. is a really odd choice. And if they were going to go through that characterization, I would have liked a little bit more of an explanation on what turned her yeah because I I'm gonna be honest I do not believe that Amori wants to be immortal I just don't see that for her she you know doesn't seem like the kind of person who'd be afraid to die it's she seems more like live my best life to the fullest and then kind of go out happy you know yeah well this is something I was gonna mention is there's this line that she says that's a survivor's move um and she says it in kind of this like reverential admiration for Murphy Mm -hmm. and I think that the I okay I think the show is confused about whether or not Amori is still a Slytherin and we have talked at length about her transformation over the years and how she started out as this person who was had survival instincts from pure necessity of being exiled and mistreated and all of these things she'd build up all these walls and that made her very Murphy-like in certain certain ways Mm -hmm. but as she has found a family and she has made friends and has found acceptance she has like unguarded herself and her slytherinness has sort of downshifted into a less prominent role in her in her personality and so i'm i think this in this episode particularly is having a hard time reconciling these two different amoris and i Mm -hmm. think they got themselves a little mixed up yeah. About the Amori they're working with now versus the Amori that we originally met. Yeah. You I mean the that's a survivor's move is I'm pretty sure what Murphy said to uh, Amori in episode seven or eight of season four. Yeah. Where Amori pretended that that like rando guy who broke into Becca's lab was a uh, person from her past. Yeah. And like kind of tricked them all into experimenting on him. What a great episode. That was a great episode. Um, but... I personally think, and I'm pretty sure I've said this before on the podcast, but I think that Amori had to be like the most Slytherin of Slytherins to survive, but I do not think that is who she is at her core. And I think when she was on the arc, she really became the best version of herself and the purest version of herself, Um, which might still be a Slytherin, but it doesn't have that same sort of like manipulative quality to it that she used to. The kind of like... I'm going to screw everyone over for myself. Um, At the same time, I also think, you know, I think her family has just widened. So I think she could still be a Slytherin, but is is much more concerned now with like a wider group of people other than just her and and Murphy. Sure. The circle has expanded in the same way that Murphy's circle has expanded to include her. 
But I, I just really have a hard time believing that Amori would go through with this without thinking back to her family um, because these are the people who like gave her acceptance when no one in her life ever has before except for Murphy you know absolutely and, and I just I, I don't believe she would turn on them I don't believe it for a second and not only that but I'm highly confused by all of the Richard Harmon interviews he gave because he talked in several different um, outlets that Amori was going to have some major issues with what Murphy did and I don't know if maybe that's just going to be something we get to later on, but it seems odd if she didn't have it in this episode that she would have it later. I agree. And also, uh, I'm also just confused, like, logistically, why they didn't just let her... I mean, like, the the mechanics, the bones of this episode, like, it would have been so easy to just let her be faking it. I mean, they, like, don't let her answer, like... Saved by Josephine. Yeah. So she doesn't have to lie to Murphy. Um, she never has to be like, yes, I'm in. And then have to betray that mm-hmm. that conf- in confidence. The, the like, you know, whole thing where she's like going along with Josephine and like giving her like these tips or whatever so that she can get out of the room and grab the collar, you know, so that she would be able to be let out of their sight. Yeah. Um, so that she could go and warn the others. Like all of those beats functionally in this in this episode were there they just made different choices which I'm very confused by they like they literally could have written it a different way and kept almost the scene yeah. exactly the same they I mean, wouldn't like, even I thought it change was the structure at all until she went and like asked Bellamy for the shot collar and I was like uh, oh okay so, so she's doing it for real right and then in that weird moment then she turns which yeah. we can talk about that later and we will I just thought it was super fascinating that they had like all of these beats ready to go they just chose option b instead of a and that was a stark choice on what they what they're saying about amori's character and i don't agree with them yeah i mean before this i think i would have been totally fine for amori to say yes to him at that moment um when they think that clark is actually dead and like this is just kind of what murphy kind of talked himself into out of that outcome um but as soon as she finds out that clark is alive First off, I think she would be a little bit more disgusted with Murphy willing to, like, murder Clark actively. Um, I I don't think that Amori necessarily considers Clark her family, but I do think she considers Clark her family's family. You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, And you don't fuck over your family's family. (laughs) So... I don't know. I, we're harping on this a lot, I know, but... Well, it, we're I harping just had... on it, I think, because it's very confusing. Yeah. I mean, it's also, like, like I'm saying, like, the beats of this episode don't make a lot of sense mechanically. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's hard to, like, figure out exactly, like, what they could have... Like, where, A, they went wrong. Like, it, it's all it's all wrong. Yeah. It is interesting, though, that Josephine feels confident enough in Murphy's need of the mind drives and Murphy's kind of being on her side to tell him that Clark is alive and that she needs his help to kill Clark um it was just like a big move and clearly she was right Murphy would have done it uh and what does that say about Murphy and what does that say about Josephine and her understanding of Murphy you know yeah well I think she's keyed into him perfectly I mean we saw her watching him when she was still posing as Clark and she seemed to get the beat pretty pretty quickly and I I would you know it's hard because with Murphy we always talk about how he has all these layers and there's many sides to Murphy and all of these things and you wouldn't be able to expect somebody 
to be able to fathom all of that with just the limited interaction that they've had. But she is a sociopath and she does study humans and, you know, mm-hmm. I think she is in some ways at a greater advantage to understanding people because she isn't, you know, weighed down by those pesky emotions um, and attachments that normal people have. And I think there's a lot about Murphy that is, um, you know, that she can understand because there's a, there's a lot of selfishness there and there's a lot of survivalist there yeah. um, in a way that I don't think she quite understands other people but but he is like the one kind of model of human that she seems to be able to relate to the easiest i think she understands other people she just doesn't agree with them right (laughs) um she agrees with murphy and his survival so so that is like i think i could like hand wave explain all of that but i like that was a big risk to take yeah that's what, what i just mean is like Earlier on, she thought she could go to Murphy because, like, Clark was dead and she didn't think Clark was coming back. And so she thought, like, I think Murphy out of everyone will be the most practical. The the one who will, like, want something out of it and, like, let this happen if he can get something himself. Yeah, he's definitely the most pragmatic. But going from that to going from, like, will you actively help me murder your friend for these mind drives is, like, a big leap. And again, she's not wrong. Unfortunately, she's not. I'm very disappointed with Murphy. Um, but I don't know. I just thought it was an interesting little bit there. Yeah, I, I, did I didn't too. expect that. I didn't expect it either. But there was a lot of this episode no. I didn't expect. I mean, first off, I mean, not first off, but last off, I just wanted to say Eliza Taylor is amazing in this scene. And not just this scene, but really this whole episode. Yeah, she shines. She just really nails Josephine to a T. And, you know, it's like you hate her, but you do enjoy watching her. Especially because she's so different from Clark. Yeah. Know? I mean, they're like, I mean, talk about like talent. I mean, this is the same person. Like it's Eliza. Mm-hmm. But you, there is not one piece of Clark in this performance at all. Yeah. And it's amazingly done. Like I've said a million times, give this girl an Emmy. <laughs> While walking through the forest, Gabriel keeps seeing visions of Josephine, clearly brought on by the anomaly. He explains that he did leave Sanctum, but after he died, the boy he thought of as a son, Eduardo, ended up transferring Gabriel's mind drive into a new host. When Gabriel woke up, he killed Eduardo in a fit of rage and decided to live as Xavier out of shame. Gabriel says he was trying to take down a system of false gods only to become a false god himself all over again, something Octavia herself can relate to. So, um, first, what are these visions that they're seeing? Do we think that this is something that's really just inside their head, kind of the effect uh, of the the red sun sort of thing? Or is this the anomaly showing them things somehow? Like, for, what I mean is, is this, are these visions coming from an internal source or an external source? That is an excellent question. For my money, I think it's internal only because of what Gabriel had said about it having a similar effect as the red sun has on the plants, um, which are, it's all um, psychologically triggered. Mm -hmm. I don't think the anomaly is putting specific visions into their head. I could be wrong. I hope I am. That would be really fun. (laughs) But I don't think so. I, I did think it was curious that Gabriel had said the anomaly had a similar effect to the red sun. Um, and that's why he wouldn't let Dioza bring her weapons because she would like kill them all. But that is not what we saw in um, this episode. We really saw a lot of like 
psychological like visions from your past more so than any sort of violent outbreaks like we saw from almost everyone in uh, the Red Sun episode. Um, so I guess to answer the question that I asked you, I do think it's mostly coming from an internal source, but I think the anomaly in some way might be like reaching in and like finding what is most traumatic to them or, or what their deepest desire is and like pulling that out in some way um, as like a way maybe to learn about humans itself. Maybe. I'm completely pulling this out of my ass, but I, I really like the anomaly. I like I, the anomaly too. <laughs> and I, I like to think of him as like having some sort of like psychic. Um, yeah. I like the, the, I like the thought of him studying humans through this kind of and human psychology specifically yeah, yeah. <laughs> to better help humans of course uh, yes <laughs> he's getting a postdoc in therapy i also like that we have like dubbed him as a he yeah, he, he, feels is a like a, he feels like a specific he, he. <laughs> i guess that's not fair it should be a they it's a it's a whatever i just keep thinking of him as a he it's really an it i also think of he. it a he, as a he but i'm not sure why <laughs> um it's really do um, uh yeah oh, swirly do yeah yeah um this scene really though it doesn't paint gabriel in the best light uh you know i, I have been pretty like hot and heavy on on gabriel slash xavier because he's, he's really hot he's very hot <laughs> <laughs> he's a very attractive man um uh we did know that he did a bunch of those horrible things when he was a prime but i think what really soured me a little bit was he then essentially like kills his own son in a fit of rage in a fit of rage self-described I mean, let's be fair. Octavia's had those moments herself, so I get it. But yeah, no, they're but it, equally it's, matched. It's it's not a great look for you. <laughs> no, it's not. And I, I feel like they had to do that because otherwise, he, it would have been too easy to like him. Like he's too sympathetic of a character, and Xavier, or the 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 character of Xavier, mm-hmm. before we find out that he's Gabriel, is such a good guy. He's good. Um, in a, in in every way that we have encountered him presently, he has been good, mm-hmm. and so I think they needed to give him something that we could point to and be like, that is unacceptable. Well, I to, think it, to to connect these two disparate characters yeah. between Gabriel and Xavier. I don't disagree with that, but I also think it was partially a plot contrivance because they needed a reason why he was transplanted into a new host but no one knew about it and the reason is that he killed the one person who knew about it yeah i mean there could have been a billion other ways that they could have done this he could have he could have broke his leg and gotten an infection and died you know he could have been attacked by the you know the red sun could have affected him when he stayed out too long and he accidentally ran into a tree like there could have been a thousand different ways i mean but they specifically chose him to end him in an act of violence i think in a way to paint a portrait of his character um one more time yeah uh also just on a purely practical level how did eduardo get the serum to erase savior's mind because i'm pretty sure the children of gabriel don't just have stockpiles of a serum <laughs> to erase your mind you know what i mean <laughs> we don't know. like did he sneak into yeah, to he, sanctum like i feel like he probably brought it with him as like a backup for some reason when he left I mean like that was his lab I'm sure he just grabbed a bunch of shit and was like I don't know what I'm gonna need out there maybe I can repurpose this for something and then took it I don't know I have a hard time believing he would bring that when he was actively running away from that like that's a a very (laughs) specific thing to bring um and I'm, I'm really picking nits here but 
that kind of struck me a little bit. Yeah, <laughs> it was weird. I mean, but let's just let it go. <laughs> I do love God. I love Dioza so much. She just cuts straight through his self pity spiel and just like straight up calls him what he is, which is a coward. Yeah, I mean, Octavia calls him that too. And then she also kind of makes that kind of connection between them, which is you didn't abandon your people. You were just too afraid to lead them. I know. It was so good. And I know that Octavia was talking about herself here, but I was curious when exactly you think she was referring to. Like, which version of herself was she referring to? Oh, that's such an interesting question. Because... I, oh, go oh, ahead. Sorry. No, no, no. No, no I want to hear what you say. Well, because I, I was thinking, I don't know if her being Bloodrena, like she, she took on the role of Bloodrena specifically to lead them. So was she talking more about abandoning her people before she became Bloodrena? Or is she talking about now specifically? Like she has left her people because she can't be strong enough to lead them anymore? Like what are your thoughts? Because I was confused. I actually think it's more... Um, metaphorical than than either of those examples Mm -hmm. I think she is talking about leadership less in a like leaving in the sense of like being physically there and more in the leaving of like she is no longer capable and I think she she is referring to specifically the moment where she chose um to destroy Eden the valley shallow Mm -hmm. valley or you mean destroy the uh the, the farm the yeah I'm talking about the farm, farm. Yeah. I'm talking about the farm um where she decides to st- destroy the farm and started acting out of power you know grab for power rather than in the interest of her own people she failed them yeah and she stopped being a leader and and became a monster and I think that's what she's talking about she was a coward because she couldn't make the tough call and she the left tough call to step down to step down and she left them almost like this the tough call to stop leading them yeah I love that. I'm glad I asked you that question because that was a great answer. Thank you. <laughs> um, I do really love that the show hits on those similarities between Octavia and Gabriel because we'd called them out before, but they're there. They're glaringly obvious. And I really do hope that we get to see that explored and juxtaposed further going on in this season. And then hopefully next season, I hope Gabriel doesn't die. <laughs> I mean, given from the way that this episode ends, I would almost like I, I'm like 100% confident we're going to get. Well, something I'm about 50% confident I never really know so <laughs> I guess that's fair I am 60% confident <laughs> um I do appreciate that Gabriel was disgusted by the fact that he spent so much time and energy quote unquote dismantling systems about false gods only to discover that he had become a false god again I mean I think that's such an interesting concept I love that he was self-aware about it I love that that's kind of what drove him to his bouts of insanity if you can call murdering your surrogate son insane and I I love that this is his curse you know he has like committed acts against humanity he has done heinous crimes he has like gone directly against nature and has like defied humanity by creating immortals and by by creating life Mm -hmm. and because of it like his curse is to always be a god and he can't escape it it's his fate I love that I love the idea that like what he really wants or it seems like he wants is to die and he's denied it but it's kind of like his own fault like he created his own prison yeah it's really really beautiful Mm -hmm. um 
One quick note. It's not surprising that Octavius' hallucination is of Bellamy bound and gagged because he's the only thing that she cares about. Um, But I did think it was interesting that we saw that. I don't know why, but that, like, was a little jarring to me. And I don't – I can't quite put my finger on why. Like, when I think about it, I'm like, of course it's Bellamy. But I guess because – I'm not sure. I mean, I think for – for Octavia, that was their darkest moment. Yeah. Um, her deepest fear is that Bellamy will die, and especially Bellamy will die hating her, and that she'll never get the chance to make things better between them. Um, but also, she is the cause of him hating her, and she doesn't quite know how to bridge that gap anymore. Um, she's the one who put him in the pit. So she's stuck in this, like, her deepest desire is to, you know, make amends with her or with him um but her fear is that she is incapable of it um and so i i I loved kind of seeing those two things together and i know i mean i don't know but i'm as as much as i could ever know anything in this show i'm pretty sure we're gonna confront those feelings next episode i hope so i'm ready yeah um just one little note here i loved the vision of josephine saying to gabriel he as in eduardo loved you too much to lose you i know the feeling um, because at first glance, it almost sounds like she is talking about, like, I know how much I loved you, you know, and then I lost you. But really what she's saying is, like, you loved me too much to lose me, and so you turned me into a monster. Yeah. And this is obviously his vision of her. I don't think Josephine sees what he did in that way. No. Um, but I think he sees what he did to her in that way, and that's why it's just it's a really intriguing look at his psyche right, psyche right now. Yeah, no, it was such a great line. It was very well done. But everything about the anatomy stuff was well done. Yeah. So, <laughs> Josephine torments Murphy by saying that Clark knows what he's done and can see him betraying her even now. Amore goes off to get the Allegis shock collar that they need to complete the EMP. She tells Bellamy that she needs the shock collar to help build their new radiation shield, and he gives it to her. But when Amore looks on at him and the rest of her family, she has a change of heart and tells Bellamy that Josephine is trying to erase Clark that day. Bellamy snaps into action, but then realizes that Maddie is gone. And in Miranda Prime's room, we see Maddie kill her, enacting her earlier plan that the rest of Sky Crew shut down. Uh, So going through this a little step by step, why do we think Josephine taunts Murphy here in the beginning of this scene? Like, is it really that she's just that cruel or is she testing his resolve? What do you think? Well, it's interesting you bring this up because I was going to ask you the same question. Um... I I would my first instinct is to say maybe a little of both but I think that's giving her too much credit I genuinely think she just likes to fuck with people I agree with that but I also was a little surprised given how smart Josephine is it seems like this would not be a step she wants to take I don't think she would want to kind of convince Murphy further that what he's doing is wrong. You know what I mean? I think she needs Murphy to help her. And so, you know, she wouldn't want him to change his mind. Yeah. Um, Which I think pushing him about Clark and how Clark can see him and like how he betrayed Clark could, in theory, you know, turn him away at the end from actually going through with it. Yeah. Um, yeah. Which again, he, we don't get that chance to see what he would have done, but it, it was just an interesting choice on Josephine's part 
to do that taunting. And maybe you're right. Maybe it is that she's just so full of herself that she just kind of likes to do this shit and like fuck the consequences. Yeah. I mean, I think that's what we saw last episode in Nevermind where the only enemy that's formidable to Josephine is Josephine. <laughs> she is her own worst enemy and that it's her pride that gets her. Um, she falls on her own petard. She is so conceited and such a megalomaniac that she doesn't think anyone is as smart as her. She doesn't think anyone is you know um as good or as cool as her um as is deserving as her and so I think you know the way that she looks at other humans is that they're like ants or pieces on a board that she can move around and while I do think that she is very manipulative and very good at reading people I genuinely think that she just is a sadist and enjoys torturing people yeah I, I really do see that yeah um Josephine keeps telling Amori so she tells Amori that they're going to be great friends and she keeps using this word friends and I don't think she knows what it means <laughs> yeah she said it with Clark yeah. and then she said it here I'm not sure you know what the word friend is she <laughs> like, clearly doesn't because her murdered her, her friend murdered her you know like and she murdered her friend yeah back she deleted her completely forever <laughs> um which I just think is funny that I mean like she knows she doesn't know what a friendship she doesn't yeah. need friends she's like Voldemort she doesn't want friends mm-hmm. she doesn't need friends she just it's another way of torturing them because she knows that they have no interest in being friends with her at all um so it's really funny yeah i agree um and i don't want to harp too much on how amori's arc gets played out again i you know we've talked about it a lot yeah but i think we have to talk about it i do want to talk about this scene where she goes to bellamy to get the shot collar and like it, she really is like gonna just walk away with the shot collar and and go kill clark yeah she's like heading for the door then she has a change of heart. Um, and I, I personally just feel like this is a gross mischaracterization of Amori and who Amori is um, on like a deep soul level. I do not think for one second Amori would ever betray her family to become immortal. I just I just don't. You know? I don't either. Um, I thought this I, the entire time I was watching this, I just was like, what am I watching? I don't understand what I'm watching. This is this feels like a huge betrayal of her character. Um, which kind of, I guess, leads me to your question earlier, which was, um, was Bellamy fair in excluding Amori from this? Yeah. So I personally don't like the fact that Bellamy was right in distrusting her. I think it would have been much more powerful and a much better arc if she like immediately goes to her friends to tell them like, here's what is happening and then realizes that they had kept something from her because they didn't trust her and her having to reconcile with that um, and with the person that they think that she is and the person that she really feels like she is. And I think what demonstrates that really well in this episode is that when she finds out that they didn't trust her, she doesn't lose her mind over it. She doesn't have a big scene. She doesn't react to it in a way that you would expect somebody who would be selfish to react to it. Well, I mean, she, she doesn't. Rea- she reacts to it in a very sensible, like, okay, fine, but we have bigger things to deal with, and I want to save Clark. She doesn't react to it, I think, because she's like, oh, guess you were right, you know, like I can't say anything about it because you were right. But I, I, I just think that was a poor choice for this episode. I actually feel like she was being the bigger person in that moment. That was like the only true moment, the tr- only true Amori moment of the entire episode for me, where like Bellamy was like too embarrassed to tell her why he 
why he didn't let her in on the secret earlier. She guesses it. He goes to defend himself, and she's just like, let it we don't have time to deal with this. Let it go. But I mean, again, Bellamy was right. I know he was right. But that's what I'm saying. Like, I, I think the way that it played out it doesn't quite click with me in what you're saying, which is that she was being the bigger person because she couldn't be the bigger person because he was right not to trust her. I mean, he wasn't right. That was just bad writing. But yeah, no, I, I, I think we're, I think we're both right. Yeah. I, I, just, I just, I, I like, I, I just, the more, the first time I watched this episode, Amori's arc nagged me and I couldn't quite figure out what I was really upset about but then the second time we rewatched it it all just kind of like came to me in this like just angry knot of fury and irritation and I I just I don't like how this played out I don't like how this played out either um I don't have as much rage about it because I think I've reserved all of my rage for Abby. That's fair. We'll get to that later. <laughs> I have plenty of rage to spare. <laughs> I just like, I can't lose sight of how much I am so angry about this Abby situation that, but I, I do agree with you a hundred percent. I don't agree with this. I, I think this is a betrayal of her character. I think it's bad writing and I think it's a bad characterization for somebody who they don't invest enough time in. And when they do finally give her an Amori centric episode, like this is what they give us. I mean, she did write it out. They, they course corrected very quickly. And then after this, I think it's all fantastic. Yes. Um, yes. Once we get over this hump, we, we go back to a place where I'm okay with things. But I just, I, I love Amori so much that to see her being taken in this direct, direction a little bit upset me. Yeah. Um, clearly. That's what, that's where the rage is coming from. It's like fury on Amori's behalf. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I did want to say that despite the fact that this entire arc for Amori is stupid, <laughs> I do like that it's her encounter with her space family and specifically Echo that reminds her exactly what is at stake and what she has to lose um, that finally brings her over to the side of good. I like that their relationship is reinforced here in a way that still feels true to their relationship and their dynamic without sacrificing either one of them, mm-hmm. even though the way that it is interplayed with the rest of this episode is stupid. I still like this kind tiny beat. I do too. I, I really do. That, like, that like is I said good. earlier. I love the echo Amori, just like tiny little interactions or yeah. even just like the, um, acknowledgement that they had interacted, like at the beginning of the episode, Amori says that echo told her that, that Murphy had done this thing. So yeah. like, it's clear that her and echo just like have like little girl chats. They're best friends. <laughs> yeah. Um, and one last thing, I just, the Bellamy at the end of this scene, um, where he is like, okay, we need a plan. Let's go. He's just like laser focused on his, on a purpose. And I love seeing this kind of Bellamy. It's just like mm-hmm. the old version of Bellamy. And it was just, it was fun to see. It was like a very energetic. Yeah. Kind of refreshing vibe. And I was digging it. Yeah. Um, and I, I don't want to get too much into Maddie's arc this episode because I don't really care about it. But well, there's also, there is no arc. But yeah. Yeah. That's say. true. Um, but I know that Maddie's a little murder child now, but like, did she really need to kill Miranda's lover too? Like that just seemed a little extreme. Well, what's what I think was what makes it really extreme is I can completely understand her wanting to murder everyone in Sanctum thinking that Clark is dead and like being so blind with rage that vengeance is the only course of action she can see. Mm-hmm. That makes perfect sense to me. Once you learn that Clark is alive, your vengeance plot uh, is weaker. Yeah. Uh, this doesn't make as much sense. I'm not sure where this anger and the rage is coming from, except for the urgency to get Clark back. 
Well, what her plan had been earlier was to kill all the primes. Yeah, no, I, I understand the plan. The rest of Sanctum and then use their lab. But also, like, Maddie, they're concocting their own plan without you and they're going to leave you behind. So you're just going to be stuck here in Sanctum with a bunch of murdered primes. You know what I mean? Yeah, I think to your original point, this just the, the killing of the other, the, the dude in the bed is just excessive violence for the sake of violence, um, which seems unnecessary given that Clark is still alive. Yeah. Is what I'm saying. Yeah, I agree. Our favorite plots next. God. On the mothership, Raven is in Shaw's room rem- remembering their time together when Abby comes in. Becca's Nightblood serum can only be combined in zero-G, and Abby needs Raven to do it for her. Raven refuses, saying Kane wouldn't want this, but Abby doesn't care what Kane wants as long as he gets to live. And she says she'll do the spacewalk herself. Later, though, Raven changes her mind and does the spacewalk for Abby. So it is nice here to see a little bit of Raven still mourning Shaw because his death at this point was only like, what, a week ago? Yeah. Um, and she's been kind of focused on other things this season. Riker. Riker. Other, other, other quote unquote things. But um, I, I did like this like little callback to Shaw and their time together in his room. <laughs> I didn't realize that's what she was doing the first time. Like when we watched this and we recap again, I'm like, oh, look, Raven's pouting again. And Rosero is like, she's mourning Shaw. And I was like, oh, God, I'm so sorry. Like, <laughs> I didn't know. I, I couldn't tell. I was just like so blind with rage over what's happening here that I like <laughs> I couldn't see what was on the screen, um, which leads me into my tiny rant. It's going to be tiny. Okay. I am livid with this Abby situation. And I am even more livid that it is not just self-contained to Abby's self-destruction, but is now also leaking into Raven's character arc as well. This is my biggest gripe of this episode is that Abby's implosion has collateral damage and that Raven is her collateral damage. Yeah. I mean, I hate it in many ways. And I, I think what's really sad is Abby's and Raven's relationship was such a beautiful thing in the early seasons and it's just become so twisted and gross and I just don't ever want them to be together ever again. <laughs> no, I, there's, I feel like there's like, and I've said, we've said this before on this show where like, I don't know how they can recover from this. This is like the infamous last words, right? Mm. But I really feel like it for them. Um, before we get too much into your... Uh, or really both of our yeah, um, I don't know what you're talking about discussion you equal amounts of things no, to say no we really do um, I have another like tiny little practical question in that I'm not sure why the hell they need to make Nightblood Serum and Zero G I don't know why they need to do that when all they really need is Simone's bone marrow as we saw them do with um, Luna as Abby or as uh, Raven actually mentions in this scene they take Luna's blood marrow and then they just I don't know inject it into a vein and it seems to work just fine for Clark um, so it's just very strange to me that Abby would risk death to show them how to create Nightblood from scratch Versus just, like, grabbing Simone and and stealing a little bit of her bone marrow. You know what I mean? Um, I think the... I think the contextual reason for this is what I said. Or or, or is that um, maybe they just... The bone marrow transfer is, like, too painful and they wouldn't want to go through with it. And the the serum is a very uh, easy, convenient way of doing this. But really, this is just plot contrivance. Yeah, I mean, I think I think that's bollocks because I actually feel like. Are you British? Yes, I am. <laughs> I'm bringing it because I there's no American word right now that I can d- 
describe this perfectly. It's bollocks because I think all Simone wants right now is to just know how to make night blood. And I don't think she would care if she had to like have a bone marrow transplant for it. I 100% agree with you. This is total plot contrivance. But <laughs> I, like, I can't think of any other in-context reason for that to be. So that's what we're going with. Moving on to Abby. Um, to start us off, I'm going to start with a nitpick, which is going to lead into a bigger complaint. I'm building my thesis. Okay. Uh, the first is, so Abby tells Raven that she didn't come to debate this. She like walks into the room and she's like, would you do this for someone you love? And Raven's like, not if it meant killing someone. She's like, I didn't come to debate this. So she literally walked in 10 seconds earlier and is like, would you do this? It was the first question. It was the first, was the first thing, thing she, she said. said. She comes in and asks a question. Like, you did come in here to debate this. That's, <laughs> that's actually why you walked in. So that is a, that's bad writing, first of all. <laughs> that's just dumb. And second of all, it leads us into a greater discussion of Abby being unbelievably frustrating. I, I actually wouldn't call that bit bad writing. I feel like that accurately describe that that like little interaction accurately describes where Abby's headspace is right now which is that she like doesn't want to listen to anyone else's opinion but her own because she cannot imagine another outcome that doesn't involve Kane being alive I hear you and I think you're probably right I think it's more irritating on a character level than a writing level for me I am irritating on a writing level that we have to be here at all so (laughs) So there we go. I mean, I did want to call up. This is a really interesting juxtaposition, this scene, um, to the one last season with Abby telling Kane that he should have let her die. And then Kane being like, I couldn't make that choice. Like, Abby had wanted to be left outside of the bunker yeah. um, and have someone else take her place. And Kane ultimately, like, gassed her and then, like, l- like took her in anyway. Yeah. Um, and we had talked a lot last season about, like, we really weren't sure where we fell on that um, morally just because obviously I think it it should have been up to Abby. Um, you know, I, I don't think committing suicide is the right way to go, but it did feel like it was her body, she, her choice. Yeah, her body, her choice. Thank you. Yeah. Um, but then on the other hand, Kane was also like, I love you. And I, I honestly couldn't just like actively let, let you, you die. die. Um, and uh, now we're like flipped the switch and now Kane's the one who's dying and Abby's the one who has to do something terrible to save her, um, or to save him. And I'm curious if that conversation between them from last season is going to be brought back up in further episodes. I would hope so. Um, I do like the idea of this, um, in like a storytelling perspective of flipping, flipping this dynamic. Yeah. Um, I don't think it's worth sacrificing. I, I don't think it's worth sacrificing Abby's character just to insert this reversal. Yeah. Um, especially because this already took place, right? So, like, the Abby in the present experienced Abby's past. And she would f- understand what it feels like to have that choice taken away from you. Mm-hmm. And that would, in, in theory, um, affect the way that she thinks and behaves moving forward now obviously she is like in an altered state right now so Mm -hmm. she's not really taking into account all of her experiences but I have a really hard time believing that that Abby wouldn't remember this (laughs) happening last year yeah you know I mean this wasn't last year well you know what I mean this was six years ago but still yeah still um 
I guess I have a question for you at this point. So Gavin is essentially dead. Yeah. Uh, I, I know Abby, the way Abby is thinking about it now and the way Abby is trying to approach this situation with Raven is, is being like, Gavin is dead and it will be a waste now if we don't bring Kane back because Gavin will have died for nothing. Um, I, I mean, what do you think about that? Because I, I'm not well, sure that I disagree at this point. I'm like, well, Gavin is dead. He's dead. <laughs> but the question, I mean, I think there's a there's a, something that you wanted to talk about, which I think we should we should get to before I answer this question, which is that the moral the conundrum of this episode is not centered around the whether or not we should obliterate Gavin, but it should be. Yeah. Do you want to talk about that a little bit? Yeah, I mean, that, that basically is what I wanted to say is just, I think this episode would have been much more interesting um, to have a moral decision about whether or not to kill Gavin. And we kind of talked about that a little bit in the first se- scene with him. But um, at this point, it's kind of like the hardest part, the hardest choice has been taken away and Abby doesn't have to make it anymore. And now it's just kind of like, well, either Gavin died for nothing or Gavin died to put Kane in him. And it's kind of, it, it doesn't feel like it has that same moral co- quandary to it, you know? Right. So then if you remove that moral quandary, then the moral quandary is then emphasized and placed upon um, this idea of whether or not it is moral to waste this sacrifice Mm -hmm. you know are we going to let him become a martyr is he going to be is his death going to be made in vain which I think is the wrong question that's the question that the episode poses yeah but I dis I just disregard it I refute it (laughs) um because I think the real question is is it is it okay to hurt other people to save someone you love no no that's not the question (laughs) oh okay the question is is it okay for you personally to justify the evil that has become in order to get what you want so in other words like abby regardless of whether she made this choice no matter what gavin has been wasted uh he's gone he's dead is it okay for her to take this choice away from kane as well and insert him in a body that he wouldn't know knowing the guilt he will feel when he wakes up Mm -hmm. and also taking advantage of a situation where evil has been done like, the evil can't be undone. A man was killed. Gavin has been killed. Yeah. We can either respect his death, which, I mean, his manipulation is disgusting. The way that he's been manipulated to believe that this is a sacrifice is morally wrong. So his sacrifice isn't something we can respect in the first place. So we have to get rid of all of that baggage. The only thing we know for certain, and under no, under no uncertain terms, is he's dead. We can either let him rest in peace, or we can mutilate his body and reanimate it with somebody else and erase his him completely that's the moral question the real moral question of this show and it's abby's sacrificing herself and her soul basically and and raven enabling her to do so and that is the real problem is that their relationship is sticky it's complicated um and it was originally started out as you know abby being the mother to raven as the daughter but through her addiction and her traumas and whatever their relationship has reversed and abby has been the one who has needed help and advice and guidance from raven for the past couple of seasons despite raven being very uninterested in providing it um but she ultimately gives in to the toddler tantrum that is abby begging to save Kane's life here and enables her to lose her soul. I mean, I think that's what we just saw. 
I, I kind of wanted to go back to what you were saying about the central question of the show, which I loved. Um, and just kind of adding on top of that, or maybe kind of clarifying my understanding of what you were saying is that an evil has already been done and that Gavin has been murdered. Yeah. But it is also evil, or I don't know if I would use the word evil, but also wrong um, to put Cain into this body actively knowing that this is not what he would want. Yes. Um, so it's kind of like a wrong has already been done, but you're going to choose to do another wrong on top of that, whereas you could just let that one wrong rest. Yeah, it's going back to what Dioza was saying, right? You can always choose to do better. Yeah. Um, Simone was the one who made the evil choice. She killed him, and she's used to it. She has no moral moral um, hindrance to stop her. Mm-hmm. Gavin thinks that he sacrificed himself and is, uh, is doing this for the greater good but his understanding of the situation is so limited to what is actually happening here that what he believes is moot you know we can't even grant him the courtesy of of granting his wish because it was it was incomplete Mm -hmm. to begin with um and so the show is confused about what we're talking about here because this is what we're actually talking about is like two evils versus one but they are they're more concerned about this like sacrifice and and this martyrdom but there is no martyrdom so essentially what you're saying is two wrongs don't make a right i do that's (laughs) i could have just said that just distill it down wow i just talked for 10 full minutes and i could have just said that um but i also wanted to call out something you'd said about how raven is basically enabling or or she's not saving abby she's actually hurting her soul you know like, yeah. she might be saving Abby from dying out in space, but she's not saving Abby's soul from what this is going to do to Abby, you know, having actively done this going forward and how um, Abby and Kane are going to kind of destroy each other, I think. Yeah, I mean, it's just so ironic that she is, like, technically physically saving her life by spacewalking for her, but is ultimately damning her. Yeah, and I, I just wanted to add to that, too. Like, I don't feel like this is a satisfying arc for Raven to be looking at Abby like her mother because... Again, she's not saving Abby by doing this, except for maybe, like, physically. She's also, like, enabling Abby's addiction. For sure. She's, like, allowing Abby to, like, keep going down this path. I don't... I say this every episode, but it's all, like... Raven always has something that she could do to stop what's happening, and she... I guess she lets other people make their choices after she voices her dissent, which, you know, in certain situations could be a good thing. But I think in a lot of situations that Raven herself has faced, it ends up feeling like, again, you're complicit. I'm definitely repeating myself well, here. Well, I think what's hap- what I think what you're trying to get at is like out of context, the idea of giving someone space to make their own decisions seems respectful. Yes. In context, knowing what we know, it is disrespectful to what Abby used to mean to her and what she used to be. It, it's it's disrespectful to Abby's memory to, to allow her to continue in this choice. Yeah, and also like adding on top of what you said, yes, it's like respectful to let people make their own decisions. But if those decisions are like morally wrong, yeah, then I think you have a moral obligation to do what you can to stop it. Yep. And again, all Abby or all Raven would have to do is just let the Nightblood serum fly away. I mean, I guess at this point they could also just take Simone's Nightblood. I don't know why they're doing that. Not doing that. I mean, like it's it's all made up. But it's it's just like Abby or Raven could do more. (laughs) 
I'll just I'll just end it there. Raven could do more and she doesn't. Guys, and so she's just enabling Abby. We really didn't like this scene. We can't even talk about it I know. coherently because we didn't <laughs> like this scene. It's so hard to make like strong points because I just feel so much like all of my emotions are so tangled together in this episode and I'm trying to like pick apart different threads and it's like I am all over the place. <laughs> it's, and also like I've had like seven days to like saturate in this and I've only gotten worse. Like I've, I only feel worse about this the farther out we get from it. Like yeah. it has not lessened in a week unfortunately ultimately though I just I really really hope this whole body snatching business blows up in Abby's face oh, I hope too. I mean this this sounds terrible but I hope that it ruins her relationship with Kane I, I don't think they deserve a happy ending together anymore I, I I just don't no I don't either and I I don't know what we're gonna do with this Kevin I mean like what are we gonna do with him I, <laughs> we'll get there <laughs> Amori and Riker get the EMP working, but just before they can do the surgery, Amori steals the EMP and runs away. Josephine and Murphy track her down, and Murphy tries to talk to Amori back er, into giving back the EMP, but Amori has made up her mind, and it turns out this was all a trap by Sky Crew to get Josephine near the radiation shields. Sky Crew goes to capture Josephine, but she takes Murphy hostage at Scalpel Point. So now they have two bad choices. Go after Josephine and risk her killing Murphy, or give up on trying to save Clark and let Josephine go. Okay, so we finally learn what Josephine is holding over Riker this whole episode. It's that he helped Gabriel escape and essentially helped form the terrorist group Children of Gabriel. Quote-unquote. Quote-unquote. <laughs> um, and again, they are continually giving Riker backstory and character aspects that paint him in a more sympathetic light because obviously he is going to be the prime that we convert back on yeah. our side um and also is probably going to be a love interest for raven at yeah, some point and he honest. needs to be a sympathetic character <laughs> um one quick note i wanted to call out that um we get an aerial view which we've used before but i forgot to call it out before so i want to call it out here is every time they, they we show this aerial birdshot bird's eye view of sanctum you can see that the that the city is laid out in the fibonacci sequence the spiral that we mm -hmm. see all over the place which is really really cool yeah and i love that um and i just wanted to call that out because i forgot to it's everywhere and it's awesome <laughs> Um, but getting into some of the meat of this scene, so Murphy, in trying to talk Amori into giving back the EMP, is telling her, like, oh, remember what Clark did to you? She, like, was willing to experiment on you in Becca's lab. And, you know, I get that Clark has done bad things. I will defend Clark to my death, but when she's wrong, I will also, you know, admit that. And I think that Clark has been wrong occasionally particularly last season with the things that she did um, that hurt her friends. And she deserves to have those things called out, even though I think it might be getting a little bit excessive this year. But you know what she deserves even more than that? It's to have the good things that she's done called out. And she's done so many good things for her friends and for her people. And I'm really furious that in this scene, they specifically had Murphy remind Amori about Clark willing to experiment on her in Becca's lab. But then what they don't actually have Amori say back is like, well, remember how that actually turned out? Clark experimented on herself and was willing to like put herself in the oven uh, to save us. And then later when my suit broke, Clark gave me hers. And then Clark saved us by turning on the power and staying behind on earth while we all went to the ark. Like Clark has done so many things for them. And the fact that they 
and I am calling up the writers here, the fact that the writers didn't let Amori like bring this stuff up as an example is just really frustrating about the way that Clark is constantly treated in this show. Not necessarily, I wouldn't say necessarily by the writers, but at the same time, it really is always, you know, the characters calling Clark out, but never like saying thank you. Um, everyone, I think, really needs Clark to be the person who bears it so they don't have to, but then they get mad at her for bearing it. I 100% agree with you. And, um, you know, I, I, I see a lot of people online. I know a lot of people who watch this show who are not totally enamored by Clark and honestly, like, pretty annoyed with her all the time. They think she's annoying. They they get, you know, frustrated with her and all on and on and on and on. And I think that part of the reason is because the show has not done their due diligence reminding us about everything that Clark has done in service of her people in a good way. Um, it's one of their flaws, they have a hard time reminding us all of the good things that Clark has done and what makes her such a badass. They just assume that we will remember all of those wonderful things because she's the main character. Mm -hmm. But it's not enough. Um, and I think it's why so many people who watch this show have a complaint about her is that they just honestly don't remember. Um, and it's like scenes like this that it reinforce what the Murphys in of the world think of her and which isn't actually true. I mean, they don't remember. And also I think there's a lot of just not thinking critically about the things that Clark does and not thinking about like what you would do in her place and what choices you would make and, and what those consequences might be um, if you don't make the same choices. Um, I did think, interestingly enough, there was an interview with Kim Shumway. I think it was in Hypeable yeah. uh, this week where Kim was talking about her writing Nevermind, which was the episode all in Clark's head. Um, and, and Kim just being like a lot of people, I think, get, are really hard on Clark. She was talking about the, the fandom. Um, but Kim specifically thinks like she has such a you know strong view of who Clark is and she strove to show us that person um, in Neverminds. And I think in some ways she succeeded. I I don't completely agree with her takes on Clark all the time, but I did think that interesting, or that article was really interesting in that it just kind of called out the fact that Clark gets a lot of flack both inside and outside of the show for things that I don't think are always fair. A hundred percent agree. Um, I did want to call out, it was very satisfying to watch Bellamy swat down every single one of Josephine's <laughs> arguments for how this will never work and they'll never get away with it. She was like, oh, but you don't have a surgeon. And he's like, well, we do. And she's like, oh, well, Actually, what about that was Echo? Echo was equally as smug in this scene. Well, wait, I, <laughs> they're like, oh, you, uh, there's a radiation chill. He's like, well, we have an EMP for that. Thank you very much. It was just so delightful and satisfying. And every time uh, Josephine would have those things slapped down, she'd be like, Oh. thinking for a second like and I need another thing okay well what about this and then he would just hit him <laughs> hurt over the head with it again um but I did the whole time I was watching this I couldn't help but think that you know even though it was Bellamy talking it was really probably Echo who came up with most of this plan. <laughs> I, it felt very Echo-like to me um it was very well thought through I mean Echo seems to hold the majority of the brain cells among the Sky Crew group right now you're so. not kidding Echo is my hero. I love her. <laughs> um, anyway, I thought I found that delightful. Uh, I do wish we got to see, and perhaps I missed it as I was recapping, but I feel like there should have been more of an emotional reaction from Murphy when Bellamy said, um, do you think we care about that traitor after Josephine had taken Murphy captive? Yeah. 
Um, I think there was like a little bit on his face, but it was a flicker. Yeah, I don't know. I kind of I would have liked to marinate in that just a little bit longer. I agree. Because Murphy already like hates himself, and I think hearing something like that, even though if it's not necessarily true, would just kind of add to that self hatred. I agree. And you know what, Murphy? You had it coming. You deserve it. (laughs) I did want to call out one of the show's most meta moments I have ever encountered um, when Josephine tells them that it's just, and I quote, another episode of No Good Choices. Because, boy, is she right. Yes. (laughs) Yes, it is. This is the show boiled down to its most smallest basic parts. Um, And I do think it's interesting that for in this particular case, This is not a hard choice to make. You know, Echo weighs the odds. She makes the call and it's to save Clark. And for her, it's very much like one and done. You know, I don't think this was ever a hard choice to make for her. Um, Even though this this line is the show's anthem. Yeah. Uh, I mean, kind of following that, Bellamy really is seriously considering the choice for a moment. You know, I, I... I don't know if it actually came down to, you know, would he sacrifice Murphy to save Clark? I don't know the answer to that. I, in my heart, believe the answer is no. I think he would try to find a third way because he knows deep down that's not what Clark would want. But I think his, like, Bellamy, like, 1.0 self was, like, warring with his 3.0 self of, like, Bellamy 1.0 would have, like, screwed Murphy. You screw Murphy, I'm saving Clark. You know what I mean? Instantaneously. There would have been no hesitation at all in season one so yeah it's it's growth (laughs) that he didn't growth (laughs) they do the hand gesture from love simon (laughs) the guards find out miranda is dead and herd the primes into the great hall while sounding the alarms josephine hears this and knows russell will have sent guards out to find her they're still at a standstill until murphy tells bellamy that if he can find gabriel in the woods gabriel can remove the mind drive when Amori goes to set off the EMP to take down the radiation shield, Josephine stabs Murphy in the leg. Bellamy is able to handcuff himself to Josephine and drag her over the shield line, and Echo runs back to Sanctum to help their friends. Amori, however, won't leave the wounded Murphy's side. So first off, why wasn't Jade watching Josephine throughout this episode? Wasn't that like her entire purpose for being at this point? I think Jade was watching Riker. You think she was watching Riker? Why do you think that? I don't. I can't actually say. I don't think that because Jade wasn't part of the, like, let's fry Clark with the EMP situation that was happening. Yeah, they were. She was just supposed to be tailing her. But, like, Jade I wasn't around. So what was she doing? Your whole purpose, Jade, is to guard. Jade, you had the one prime. job you, to do. You clearly had one job. I mean, I think it's a stupid job, but whatever. <laughs> I have no idea. I can't answer that question. Let's just chalk it up to an oversight. Yeah. So let's talk about Murphy. Um, You know, after coming so close to grasping immortality, I mean, he was literally holding it in his hand. Murphy finally faces his own mortality much sooner than he expected. Um, And it's it's a humbling experience for him. He ultimately sees the error of his ways and in the end chooses to save his friends and sacrifice himself. So we've had the nice little Murphy arc here. How do we... uh, Is it? Is it How nice? do we feel about that? <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm um, saying I don't feel great about it. I mean, yes, he did kind of make the right choice in the end, but he does it out of loyalty 
to Bellamy and the rest of his family. Like, he does it more of, like, you guys are in trouble right now, so I'm going to help you out. Yeah, and and Amori. Yeah, and Amori. But I'm saying, like, what I would have preferred is for him doing it for Clark eventually. You know, like, I get that he's angry at her, but come on, man. You know? (laughs) Yeah, I I agree with you She's done so much for all of you. And she doesn't deserve... She does not deserve to have one of her, one person she considers a friend or considers a family member, you know, kill her, actively choose to kill her. And let someone else inhabit her body. You know, I really, I really want Clark to come back after this and to just tell Murphy, like, you know what, what you did to me was really shitty, but we're even now. Like, you do not get to call me out on anything ever again. Like, well, yeah, after I mean, this, we are good. So get over your shit and let's move on. It would be very Clark-like to be like, we're good now. We're even. But in reality, they're not even. This is this is this is to me worse than what Clark did last season. I agree. Last season, Clark, you know, did sacrifice her friends in some ways, but it wasn't for selfish reasons necessarily. I mean, it was to save Maddie. So I guess in some ways that is selfish because she needs Maddie, too. But it was like. To save a child, you know? That's that's one thing. But Murphy here was actively going to kill Clark. Yeah. For his his own immortality. Like, that's equally as bad as what Abby's doing, for sure, you know? Yeah, it's, it's, not, it's not even. Um, but if it means that there will be no more drama between them, then fine. We'll call I, it I think, even. I think Clark would just be like, let's yeah. just end it here. Yeah. But also, never call me out again. <laughs> um, I also do love... How smart and calculating Echo is, because she really just, like, you see it play out on her face. She weighs the odds about Gabriel. She quickly makes a decision, and then she, like, snaps into action. And it's all just, like, one after another. Go, go, go. And I, 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 I don't know how many times I can say that I love Echo and that the show does not give her her due. But I love Echo, and the show does not give her her due. I agree. And, and, and Tazia tells just does such a good job with just oh. her face. Yeah, she has so much nuance. Um, with her very little, very little physicality, but like so much happening on her face. Mm-hmm. It's so good. Um, and I know <laughs> I did want to say I know it's not Clark, it's Josephine, but I still enjoyed watching Bellamy drag Josephine across the radiation field line, like. I loved it. It was a little, it was kind of hot. And I think more than anything, it just like set up what's going to happen next episode. And I am so excited for them to be alone together. I don't think I saw it as what I would describe hot. No, I don't mean like. I did think it was funny because it reminded me of like when pets try to sit down and stop walking and the owners like dragging them against their will. That's what it looked like to me. (laughs) Uh, That's not what I was thinking about. I was mostly thinking about like, oh, good. They're going to be alone next episode and I cannot wait for them to torture each other. Like, (laughs) Oh, believe me. I am here for that. Cannot wait. (laughs) Oh, no. (laughs) Um, I did want to talk a little bit about this this Echo situation because so Echo tells Bellamy to go and save Clark and she'll go after their friends to save them. And while I do appreciate her loyalty to Bellamy and Clark, it irritates me that they do not actively televise any anxiety that Echo should be feeling over how much Bellamy cares about Clark. And you and I talk about this offline a lot. But I don't think we've spent so much time talking about it on this podcast about the fact that in 
in any other show in reality bellamy's feelings for clark would be having serious repercussions on the way that echo is feeling about their relationship and that anxiety should be expressed and the fact that it isn't is weird yeah i think it really underplays how smart echo is because echo should be picking up on this kind of thing and so unless off screen bellamy is just like prostrating himself before echo and being like you are a goddess and i'm in love with you you know like unless we're like really missing something or vice versa has like straight up told her i can't help myself clark is really important to me and i'm and this is just the way it's gonna be no 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 you didn't let me finish my point oh. i'm saying unless bellamy is doing that off screen and we're not seeing it then echo should be picking up on this situation like this is this is not how a boyfriend should interact with his girlfriend you know like there should not he should not have an emotional connection to this depth of of someone else that he does not share with his own girlfriend you know you you really need to have that level of intimacy with your partner first and foremost yeah. and if it's not there then there's something wrong in your relationship yeah and the fact that it isn't there because it's with someone else should then instigate an emotional reaction from Echo, which is missing. Yeah. Which is what I'm saying. It's missing. It is missing. And it's Echo we- deserves it's, better. It's weird. <laughs> it is weird. In fact, to me, oh I'm going to say something. The most unbelievable thing of this entire series, and I am counting every single thing that has ever happened in this series, the most unbelievable thing is the fact that no one is like actively calling out the Clark and Bellamy of it all like the the writers are so careful to like tiptoe over any mention of it that like they really are showing their hands in the episode because this is not how people behave and this is not how people you know treat their friends you know like people understand their friends better than it seems like these people understand Bellamy and Clark yeah the way that Bellamy and Clark react and treat each other and feel about each other is so obvious That it is unbelievable, as you said, that their friends wouldn't comment on it Mm -hmm. or wouldn't have reactions to it themselves, Um, which is what we're talking about with Echo. It's bizarre that Murphy hasn't mentioned. It's weird that no one has mentioned it. Um, But like we we see them always toe that line of Murphy being like, oh, well, you know, if if Clark is dead and Bellamy knows it, we're all fucked. Or, you know, Octavia, I guess, I, I still think Octavia actually did call it out, but that was kind of brushed over too. Like, there's just so many points where they get so close to, like, having Bellamy and Clark actually, you know, think to themselves what they actually mean to each other, but we just never quite get there. It's never actualized. Um, I actually forgot to say this above, um, when Bellamy, or when Jordan was like, oh, you only care about Clark, and Bellamy was like, oh, no, I don't. There are so many points in this show where Bellamy and Clark kind of take their their feelings toward each other and apply it in like a bigger sense. So what yeah, I'm trying to say here, it. yeah, like they're like too scared to confront their feelings for the other person. So it's more of like 
you know, when Lex is like, oh, you care about Bellamy and Clark's like, I care about all of them. Or Clark being to Bellamy like, oh, your sister's going to see how special you are. Or uh, a couple episodes or last episode ago when um, Octavia Bloodrena in Clark's mind was like, oh, I thought you cared about Bellamy and Octavia or in, and Clark's like, I care about both of you. Like there's so many times where people where, where the show could go there, but like Clark and Bellamy like actively circle that themselves you know yeah they they disengage yeah um and it's just uh, it's an interesting well it's interesting and it's frustrating and i think it's annoying because it feels like it's a little bit baiting for blark stands but also it it has like evolved into a new level of frustrating when it affects the way that characters like echo are being written yeah and that's I think why I'm bringing it up now whereas Mm -hmm. like yes this has been a a crime that we have committed for the last six seasons but we've just kind of been okay with it and been like sure if you want to bait us we'll go along for the ride we signed up for this maybe not six years of it but that's fine (laughs) but when it is disservicing a character like Echo and relegating her to the girlfriend mode um, who should be more emotionally intelligent and aware than this allows her to be because if she were going if she were allowed to be as emotional and intelligent as we have seen her be then she would call it out but because we can't verbalize this it it does her a disservice and that's why this is annoying I know part of this is because Jason Rothenberg and well really it's specifically Jason Rothenberg has never wanted this show to be about ships but this show is all about ships. Well, I don't know but I, 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 I mean, I, I think that's wrong way of thinking about things because while I agree that romance isn't everything, romance is still a huge component of life. Um, your relationships with your partners are equally as important as your relationships with your friends. They're very different, but you know, love makes the world go round. <laughs> like this stuff is important to delve into and they've really not done a good job with Bellamy and Echo. I know they've tried this season. They've had a couple of scenes of them together. I think maybe two, let's be real. Um, But it's just, it's not enough for me. And I I need this show to really take its relationships more seriously, you know, to really allow, for example, if a relationship is dysfunctional, i.e. Murphy and Amori, to allow those things to be called out and explored, or if they're going to, like, you know, give us this relationship that's already developed off screen, like Bellamy and Echo, they need to do the work to develop it on screen as well. And I just haven't seen them do that for a lot of, of episodes or for a lot of characters, you know? Yeah, I 100% agree with you. Like, there's so many ships in this show and, and they always could be better. <laughs> yeah. There's so many times where I'm like, I like this, but it could have been better. Yeah, I agree. Anyway, yeah. <laughs> um, little tiny note here in this scene as my rant is over. Uh, it is revealed that Gabriel left Sanctum 70 years ago. So he would have been 36 when he left Sanctum um, and would have been 106 now if he was still alive, which I guess he is, but not in the same body. Um, so just a little know. interesting note. Yes. It was a long time that ago. It was a long time ago, but also like not that long in terms of the Prime's life. Yeah. No, it, it... <laughs> It's all relative. Yeah. 
While the primes are gathered in the great hall, Maddie goes after Priya, but Jordan jumps in the way at the last moment, and Maddie accidentally stabs him. Maddie and the rest of Sky Crew are taken prisoner, and Riker forces Russell to reveal to Priya the reason that Sky Crew is attacking them in the first place, that Russell killed Clark. Question. Yes. Do we think Delilah is coming through and affecting Priya, or is Priya just genuinely impressed with Jordan's heroism, like, all on her own? That was a weird moment to me because I don't think Delilah's in there anymore. If we're led to believe the only reason Clark is there is because of the, the neural mesh, mesh yeah. then I have a hard time understanding why Delilah would be, you know, in there too. Um, but I also don't know why Priya would really care about Jordan other than that, 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 that Jordan's kind of cute and has been, like, giving her flowers Well, and I mean, stuff. he saved her life. He, like jumped in front of her and got stabbed yeah, yeah, yeah. but i'm but just saying like, i agree that like was, depth of emotion it yeah. felt it, it it was odd to me and i'm curious to see that explored further yeah yeah <laughs> i it just like was a little a little odd and it, i made a note of it note of yeah. it um so russell does say five dead primes in five days and he blames sky crew for it and like a like, true politician like selective memory much because honestly so, like, the, the reason the first three died the first time was because they attacked Sky Crew's ship, and Sky Crew was just defending themselves. Uh, and then, you know, surprise, Josephine erased them. So, really, she killed those three. Then, Josephine also killed Kaylee. So, that was the fourth one. So, really, the only one that I feel has really come about, specifically because Russell allowed Sky Crew into his compound, is Maddie killing Miranda. But it was also for a reason, you know? <laughs> like, I mean, I think it was a bad reason and a bad choice on Maddie's part, but you did kill her mom, so... Yeah, I mean, he's he's being a politician and trying to cover his tracks because... the no, every- I don't think so. I think he truly believes this. I think part of him believes this, but I also think there's, like, a strategic... Like, things are unraveling very quickly, and he needs to do some damage control here, and he needs to get Sky Crew out. Hmm. Um... And they also, are. is he going to put all of Sky Crew on trial for Maddie's crimes? Like, for what? Like, what would you be trying Jackson for? He's a doctor, you know? <laughs> like, I mean, I guess he feels like she's a junior and they should be responsible for her. I don't know. I, I mean, they should have put a babysitter on her. But number one, she can't be tried as an adult. She is 12. And number two, no one else is responsible for her actions. She is a child who just went crazy. This is this is ridiculous. It's ridiculous. <laughs> <laughs> Everything about And he's in- like, I don't have any idea why this could have happened. These are just bad people. <laughs> yeah, he's like the wizard behind the curtain. Oh my gosh. He's a big fat liar. <laughs> I also think it's ridiculous that Priya's first concern is, you know, not the murder or the lying, but the fact that Russell, you know, skipped the line. <laughs> God forbid. <laughs> well, what was so funny about that scene was Riker was like, tell him what you did and then you know it's revealed that he killed clark and like you think that priya is going to be like you killed someone against their will against their will and like she like turns to russell and you're like yes priya give it to him even though i don't agree with how you steal bodies either but then she's like you skipped the line yeah she sounded like a child (laughs) what she's like what is wrong with you people you people all you're this all crazy you are all crazy (laughs) Well, all this just, like, morally bereft. <laughs> God. Uh, and Russell does make the decision, too, to arm his guards, which is, like, a really big deal for Sanctum. 
And it reminded me at the beginning of the season when Clark and Russell were talking, Russell specifically tells Clark that violence was a disease and that's why he didn't want Sky Crew here spreading their violence. But honestly, what's really interesting here is Sky Crew came in peace and the person who spread the violence was Russell. Like he made the first, he he shot the first shot, you know? Like he's the one who killed Clark that set all of these things in motion. And, you know, I wonder, violence... I think in some ways is a disease, but it's also just a choice. And like your choices have consequences. And so he's the one who chose to bring violence into Sanctum, not because he brought Sky Crew in, but because he killed Clark, you know? Because he's a giant hypocrite, which is what he is. And I think it's interesting um, that, you know, despite everything that Josephine has done and all, I mean, like she, she went against his wishes and his orders. She you know, went and made up her own plan, hatched a new plan to keep Clark's body for herself, all of this shit, put all of them in danger, led to all of this stuff. And yet Russell is still compelled to protect her no matter the cost to his own people. I mean, at this point, their primes are dying. Many primes are dying, mostly at the hand of Josephine. She is the number one threat to their society and yet he is arming his guards and going out to protect i mean like he loses his mind a little I mean, bit he, he she's his daughter i understand that like, i, I we, am we not saw clark also lose her mind last i am season. not confused about why he's acting this way as a parent but i think it's fascinating that he refuses to acknowledge how you know incapacitated he can be by this and that he's not qualified to be a leader when this kind of stuff is happening you know like you can't be a leader and a father at the same time I don't think that's true I don't think that's true at all that reminds me of that West Wing episode I'm thinking of the West Wing episode (laughs) um I I don't think it's true that you can't be a father and a leader but I think well I think in this situation his being a father is compromising his ability to be a leader that's what I'm saying thank you as they near the anomaly, Gabriel's, Octavia's, and Dioza's visions all get worse. Dioza hears a young girl and follows her, thinking she's Hope. Hope runs into the anomaly, and although Gabriel tries to stop her, Dioza runs in after Hope. Octavia then follows, wanting to save Dioza, and then Gabriel is just left alone outside of the anomaly for a few moments. Until Octavia, suddenly clean and beautiful, comes running out with her arm now completely healed. Loved this scene. Uh, Gabriel does say the anomaly shows you your deepest desires or your darkest fears and sometimes both at once. And I love first off that he's kind of seeing Josephine in that way of like he she's the person that he's loved the most. We're assuming even though we don't really have much of that story. But he also really fears what she became and what he thinks he turned her into. Yeah. Um, And I'm curious if we're going to see any more of our characters uh kind of explore this concept of having something both be your deepest fear and your greatest desire like i think we did see that with um octavia seeing bellamy uh in the fighting pit um but i hope we see it with more people too because i think it really kind of gets down into the nitty-gritty of who these characters are yeah i loved it it was it was so well done um and to be honest you know, I keep seeing like Gabriel interacting. You're not interacting, but like seeing Josephine everywhere, and you know he's clearly got some issues. And you know who can help with that? Oh, who? Dioza. <laughs> Dioza has already worked her magic on Octavia. Octavia's doing better already. Gabriel needs to schedule a therapy sesh. Well, he's gonna have to get in line <laughs> because 
The waiting room is full. That is true, but he is closest in proximity to Dioza, so he might be able to, like, squeeze in one on while they're on their way back from the anomaly, if she ever gets out. It's true. <laughs> I'm canceling Abby's appointment. He can take hers. Abby does not deserve an appointment. Actually, what Abby just needs is to go into the anomaly herself. The anomaly can straighten her shit out, just like Octavia. Like, it, if it can fix Octavia, which I'm assuming it did, having no, like, knowledge of what comes after this. <laughs> it's a leap. I don't think it's a leap. I think it fixed Octavia. I think it can fix anyone. Let's just throw Abby in there and see what happens. <laughs> Abby is above Dioza's pay grade. <laughs> Unbelievable. Um, and Gabriel, he says that no one ever comes out of the anomaly. And I tweeted about my theory, which is that perhaps the anomaly kind of sucks people in and inside the anomaly time works differently so it kind of works its magic on people and then spits them out at like different points in time whether that be the moment that they're most needed or the moment that they most need to be in yeah I love this theory I hope it's true and I think that would make sense um with you know Octavia and Dioza going into the anomaly and only Octavia coming back um I don't think that people I don't think the anomaly eats people I could be seriously miscategorizing what the anomaly is but but I love him too much to think that he just eats people so I'm hoping that he's like fixing people and then just like strategically placing them in different moments in time yeah I mean I love this theory I think it would be really boring if he just ate people yeah. I think it's way more interesting that he there is a rhyme and a reason to what he is doing and by he we are referring to the anomaly <laughs> if that's unclear yes it's a good green boy <laughs> um so I am really excited about what that means and I hope you're right because I think that's super cool I hope so too and I think it will it could lead into some really great plot points going forward about people just like coming out of the anomaly and we have to like get their stories and, you know, figure out why they're needed here at this time or why they were released at this time, you know? Yeah. It's a great spinoff idea. Uh, yeah, there's so many good spinoff ideas for this show. Um, but I do feel like Dioza might not be back this season. I don't think she's dead. I don't think she's dead. But I do think she, we, we might have a little bit of a break for her. I'm not sure, but just with the way that she looked going into the anomaly, it felt like a goodbye for now situation, you know? Yeah, I don't know. I could go either way on this. I mean, I could be really wrong and we could see her next episode, but I feel like we might not see her until next season. And we might not get Dioza's story until next season. That's very possible. Like I'm not maybe sure. maybe next season, if it again, if it's the last season, we'll delve more into Dioza's story. You know, now that I'm assuming she's gonna have her baby in the anomaly and just come out with like a kid, hopefully like a kid who can walk by itself. Hopefully a kid who looks just like Hope that went in. Well, I would assume so. Yeah, I would assume that's be what like I would kid. think. I don't know if we could actually cast that kid again. That kid might grow up too fast. You know, maybe I don't know. Um. But yeah, loving the anomaly, loving where this is going. I, I found it a little fascinating that Gabriel is clearly too much of a coward to go into the anomaly himself. Yeah. Um, as they were walking up to it and Dioza was kind of, you know, seeing hope, Josephine or his vision of Josephine says to him, like, maybe you'll finally get her answers if she goes into the anomaly. Um, so it's clear that Gabriel is looking for answers and trying to figure out what the anomaly wants for him. But he is too afraid to go in himself. And I think that's a little odd in terms of what his characterization has been like so far. Because he had mentioned earlier this episode that he actually 
wanted to die and he taught Eduardo how to take out the mind drive so that Eduardo could do that and like end his life but Eduardo was the one who refused to do it refused to kill him um so it doesn't make any sense to me why he would now bulk go into the anomaly where he thinks at worst he could die you know what I mean well I think at best he could die I think you're looking at this wrong I think the best case scenario is he would die. The worst case scenario is that he goes into the anomaly and then has to face all of his demons and all of the pa- horrors of his past in ways that are incomprehensible to him. Yeah. And he is too much of a coward to do that. Okay, that's a good point. I, I buy that. I buy the... I mean, I guess he is seeing visions of Josephine everywhere and it gets worse when he gets I mean, closer to the anomaly. I mean, I think that's why they gave Octavia the line that you are too much of a coward to lead them. I mean, I, I think his whole... They're too afraid to lead them, His, yeah. like, whole internal crisis is that he is striving to be somebody, but he's not strong enough to be that person. Okay, okay, okay. I take back my uh, my critique. I like, I like that idea. I like that he wants to die, but is too afraid to not die, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Too afraid to face what he's done. I think the anomaly is something that is beyond his comprehension and he is way way scared of what it could do to him well like, maybe once he finds out how it affects octavia he'll go in himself i i hope so i don't know um did want to throw out you know he classic april <laughs> throws out this ridiculous line hard that out of hell leads up to light which is very dramatic and you know biblical sounding and it's actually a paradise lost quote so that's very apt Oh, Gabriel with his crucible and his paradise lost. He would have been insufferable, I think, in his, like first life. Oh, you would first have been life, like Gabriel. My headcanon of Gabriel is that like he's like a he's like a hardcore like hipster. Oh, yeah. I was thinking like hipster doctor. He's wearing like a beanie. Yeah. He lives in Brooklyn. He brews his own. He's <laughs> got his own brew. brewery. Cold brew. <laughs> he's insufferable. Yeah. Um, but I love him on the show. I do too. He's great. <laughs> Um, okay, so my question to you is, what do we think that the anomaly wants with Dioza specifically? I think it's interesting that she had, like, the least physical interaction with the flares, like, compared to Octavia and Gabriel. Like, Octavia was, like, struck, and Gabriel has, like, encountered them multiple times, I think. But yet, she's, like, the most susceptible to the anomaly's, like, pull? And I'm wondering if this is because of, like, her unborn daughter, and she's, like, a more emotionally intuitive now, or she's just, like, actually a more emotionally well human compared to the other two like what do you why do you think that she is the one who goes in first well I think Octavia and Gabriel the visions that they're seeing have a dark side to them as well whereas the vision that Octavia or that the Dioza sees of hope is just greatest desire you know what I mean yeah um and I think that gives her hope quote unquote uh that you know going into this anomaly is the right move um plus i think she also just like doesn't really have much else to do with her life you know yeah she's been cast out of sanctum she's got this baby that she has to figure out how to raise i think she wants to believe that there's something in the anomaly that can help her do that yeah that's exactly what i was thinking um and that's interesting that you said that because I had made a note, you know, the, the name Hope has always been a wink in this show. You know, mm-hmm. it's like a, a literal nod towards like the future of Dioza's character as well as the others, you know, and the hope for their future. And I also just like the idea of them continually using Hope's name literally and figuratively for what it means for them on a, like a character level yeah. and like why she ends up following Hope in there. I think it's really smart. Yeah. 
Um, did you get a little bit of a vibe between Octavia and Gabriel at the end? If you put a piece of wood next to a brick on the screen, I would get vibes from it. Like, I am the easiest person to get to ship. So, like, when they stared longingly into each other's eyes and he's, like, holding her in his embrace and they're, like, lying down together on the ground. Yeah, I got some vibes. Some. I don't think we were. Well, I, I, I don't know if we were actually supposed to see any, like, vibe. They have great chemistry. But they really do have good chemistry, especially now that Octavia looks clean and beautiful. Yeah, like, she, like, walked out of there and, and Gabriel was like, holy yeah, shit. Yeah, it was, like, a bit of a double take. Now, of course, it could have been a double take because her arm has been healed. And she also, like, no one's ever come out of the anomaly before. And also, she is the most beautiful woman on Earth. But, like, again, as the show you know, doesn't like to focus on relationships. I'm assuming that's what it is, but I did. I got a vibe. <laughs> I got vibes. Um, and I, I think the anomaly actually called Octavia because it, it wanted to give her a bath. I, I think that's the true reason. That's it. Um, I think, you know, if the anomaly gets bored with its like shenanigans, its psychology and therapy, it could open up a killer spa and hair salon. Yeah. That's I a mean, great other career choice I feel for it. like it's it's not relegated to time like it can look at time in any way at any moment so it's like watched Octavia be filthy for like <laughs> 140 years at this point so it's just basically like I can't take it anymore <laughs> the anomaly is all of us <laughs> someone wash her hair if only Clark had been close to the anomaly in season three with her one head of hair oh god it's gross <laughs> gross Let's wrap this puppy up. Let's wrap this up with our favorite thing, an Abby and Kane scene. (laughs) Only you can see my face right now. Simone puts the mind drive in Gavin and leaves Abby alone. Kane, or Kevin? Kevin. Quote, you know, question mark. uh, Wakes up and realizes that his old body is lying dead on the gurney beside him. When he asks Abby what she did, Abby says she saved him. (laughs) Interesting. Uh, first off, I do want to say it must be really hard for an actor to come into a show and play an established character like this. And I think he does a really good job. I think his name is Grayston Holtz or something, something like that. Something like that, yeah. He does a great job of nailing Henry and Cusick's mannerisms and his physicality. Um, they were like a few things that like really striked me as like, oh, that's a cane move. Yeah. Um, but also... I don't know if washboard abs is going to be enough to, like, bring me back onto Kane's side. Like, just because you became a hunk, Kane, doesn't mean that I'm going to like you now that you're in Gavin. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it'll be interesting to see how his characterization moves forward now that Abby has committed this atrocity. Like, I feel like... he is going to be making the argument that we are going to be making and so is naturally going to be aligned with how we feel, which is a new position for him. We haven't been there with Kane in a while. <laughs> so I I do want to ask, though, is this the last we see of Henry and Cusick, like, forever? I think maybe. It was a very odd send-off this episode. Um, was the body on the table, like, a fake body, or was did they actually bring Kane back? No, no, that? that was fake body. It was a fake body? Yeah. It looked pretty real, which was why usually I can kind of tell if it's like a fake body or not. I'm, but I'm I was a little sure was surprised a by like how real it looked. But I was like, surely if it was real, they would have given Abby a moment to like look at Kane's body. But they didn't. 
I don't know. If he did come back for this episode, I don't understand the choices that they made to, like, barely show him. But maybe it was just, like, a really good fake. I don't know. I don't know. I did think it was interesting that Kane, upon waking up, is immediately suspicious of Abby. And, like, instead of asking the normal question, which would have been, like, what happened? Where am I? What's going on? You know, instead, he asks, what have you done? Which is this, like, super accusatory statement talk about toxic relationships it's (laughs) rough um but he's not wrong no he's not um and the fact that that's his first thought is a problem (laughs) so i know i've said this a billion times but just to wrap this all up put a button on this abby at this point truly believes that she has saved him and ultimately has sacrificed herself as we have said Mm -hmm. and like i mentioned i don't know where we go from here I don't know what's left for her at this point. I just feel like we have exhausted this storyline to its very limits of where it could be stretched for me. I have nothing to add that I haven't already said in this episode, but I don't disagree. Yeah. Okay. We're (laughs) going to leave it there. Let's just end it there because I don't want to talk about that anymore. (laughs) Me neither. All right, guys. Sorry that was kind of depressing. I didn't mean to end it on such a depressing note. Also, like, I, I, just because we're really down on this episode, I still really love this season. I don't yes. want you to think that, like, I suddenly hate the episode. And I'm, like, so excited for next week's episode. Yeah. Like, incredibly excited. Not just excited for the Bellarc stuff, although I very much am. But also, I am so excited for the Octavia Bladrena fight. I have been looking forward to it since the trailer. I am here. I am ready. I will be in this seat for the next week until it is on my screen. She's not going to (laughs) move. Um, all right, let's get through a couple of our discussion points before we wrap this up. Um, I want to talk about the title meaning in this episode. It's called The Old Man and the Anomaly. So because I got called out last episode, literally, it's the <laughs> old man who is Gabriel and his relationship to the Swirly Dale, which is the anomaly. Wait, what was the last episode? You got oh, never mind. Say never mind was about the mind. I just felt like it was important to note. So I'm noting it. Um... <laughs> I also wanted to bring up that the old man in this, this is um, reference to the book, the novel, The Old Man and the Sea by Herman Melville. Um, and it's interesting to note that the main character's last name is Santiago, which is, or the main character is Santiago, and that is Xavier's last name. Uh, so that's a cute little Easter egg that they put in there. Um, but more, um, you know, philosophically, the book, The Old Man and the Sea, which is my mom's favorite book, interestingly enough. I don't understand that, mom. <laughs> um, th- so the book is about an old man who literally goes out and sits on the sea for, like, the entire book. And he basically does nothing there, which sounds super... Uh, he catches a marlin? Yeah, he does. He's fishing. I should say that. He does fish. But, like, it's not like because a... Because he, he's not catching any... Fa- I'm reading, or I read the Wikipedia page, so I am clearly smarter than you are having not read the wikipedia page (laughs) i mean i know he he isn't catching fish so he goes out like saying i'm going to catch a fish and he catches a big ass marlin and he like likens it to himself they both fight for survival and then he catches the marlin and he takes it back but sharks eat it and then he doesn't have a fish anymore (laughs) yes that is is the book (laughs) that is true you didn't let me finish um i 
I didn't mention you're being too philosophical I think you had to give a a nice little (laughs) I didn't want to make it sound like this was like Moby Dick where he was like out to search for this like giant monster and like all this stuff he was just chilling in his boat um but I do think it's interesting so he like is this old guy so at the end of his life, he goes out to face the elements on the open ocean at the end of his life and reflects back on everything that he's encountered, coming to terms with his past and his regrets and the meaning of his life, which I think is a relevant source material and reference for this episode, which is what I was trying to Especially for say. Gabriel. Well, I know, but I wanted to give a nice Obviously concrete... for Gabriel. Well, no, I'm, but I'm saying like, I think that could relate to a lot of different characters in this episode. I think it relates to Octavia as well. But I think Gabriel is the one I'm most interested in learning about right now. Yeah, I I think it was mostly in reference to Gabriel. Um, yeah, okay. Moving on. What was your favorite line? <laughs> I'm done. <laughs> let's just let's just end this. Um, my favorite line was, "You must be hearing things. The anomaly will do that. Sometimes it's your darkest fear. Sometimes your deepest desire. Sometimes it's both at once." Uh, from Gabriel, and I, I just like that idea that your deepest desire and your darkest fear can be wrapped up in the same thing. Yeah, I think that's beautiful, and I love that line too. Um, mine is the super meta line that Josephine says, which is this brings us to yet another episode of no good choices. Um, I, I just think that this is genius. I love when the show gets meta. I, you know, love this idea of no good choices. It's something that we talk about all the time. And I think it's really funny that Josephine gets to talk about it. Yeah. <laughs> I agree. What was your favorite scene? Uh, Definitely only the anomaly scenes were even in the running in this episode. Um, But I did love when Dioza and Octavia go into the anomaly and then Octavia comes running out at the end and her arm is healed. It just, I don't know. I I get really excited about that kind of like sci-fi stuff. Yeah. Um, Especially when it relates to character development. So I'm really excited to see where we go with the anomaly from here as I keep saying (laughs) yeah I mean I think it's also that just like had like a really great uh like energy to it that 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 last um scene uh was really really fun um my favorite scene was when (laughs) Josephine kept getting shot down by Bellamy and he was just like verbally punching her in the face it was very satisfying I loved it it was great um what about next week Next week, uh, the next episode is 609, What You Take With You. In this episode, Bellamy must venture into enemy territory with an unlikely companion. And meanwhile, Octavia is forced to confront her past. Dun, dun, dun. Dun, dun, dun. We have been waiting for this moment for six seasons now. I mean, not really six seasons, but like a good four. It's octavia <laughs> Can't wait. Okay, guys. That's our episode. I can't believe we talked this long about that episode. <laughs> if you'd like to get in touch with us, you can. You can email us at skycastcrew at gmail.com. S-K-A-I-C-A-S-T-K-R-U at gmail.com. You can tweet at us at skycast. You can also tweet at us at our own Twitter accounts. I am at bperlman89. And I'm at Sarah R. McCabe. And that was our ridiculously long, oversharing, overcomplicated episode. Until next time, maybe we meet again. May we meet again. Bye-bye. Peace.